is checking some work, but I finally have them. There's rumors, Amanda, that some of them have abilities. Oh, yeah. I have seen things. Maybe Superman was some kind of beacon for them to creep back from the shadows. This is now playing's DC Movie Universe Retrospective Series. The greatest gladiator match in the history of the world. Part of the now playing DC Comic Movie Series. A golden age of heroes fighting together to defend life on Earth. Hosted by Arnie. What's a droid and crazy one? I am. Stuart. I knew Sebastian sensed good in you for a reason. And Jacob. Each member of the team is chosen for his or her own completely unique set of abilities. At NowPlayingPodcast.com, we will be reviewing all the DC Universe movies featuring Superman. I grew up in Kansas, General. About as American as it gets. Batman. We just have a bad history with freaks dressed like clowns. Wonder Woman. Oh, I don't think you've ever known a woman like me. Suicide Squad. What the hell's wrong with you people? We're bad guys. It's what we do. And Justice League. They said the age of heroes would never come again. It has to. This episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. Are you effing stupid? Listener discretion is advised. Let's go save the world. Today, we're reviewing The Suicide Squad. Starring Margot Robbie, Idris Elba, John Cena, Joel Kinnaman, with Sylvester Stallone, and Viola Davis. Directed by James Gunn. This is the now playing co-host, who's also the beautiful monster between your legs, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is J-A-K-O-B, because all names are letters, dickheads. (laughs) (laughs) Are we back at DC, or are we somehow having a secret Marvel movie snuck into this universe? James Gunn coming in feels like a real course correction from Zack Snyder. This feels very different, tonally speaking, than the movie we saw five years ago. Also called Suicide Squad. I do love it when, like, Predator, Predators, The Predator, you know? I mean, next movie is going to be Suicide Squads. Hmm. How do we differentiate? Yeah, how do we reboot a franchise without calling it a reboot? (laughs) And this is definitely a side boot, but let's look back at that 2016 film. Five years have passed since Suicide Squad. I rewatched it. I thought it was necessary to do that. I did go back, I rewatched it. I watched it a lot the year it came out, the year after, kind of talked during our fantabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn review, how I went a little bit Suicide Squad hyped during that time. I hadn't watched the film probably since Birds of Prey came out. So I went back, I rewatched it. I re-listened to our reviews of both of those Harley Quinn movies. And yeah, I stand by it, but David Iyer, director of the first one, does not. Well, it's not his cut. We need the Iyer cut. Let me guess. It was taken out of his hands and retooled. Because the one thing that was clear then and now, going back to that movie, is it doesn't cut together. It is a series of music videos that is looking for a story. Yeah, apparently there's a whole Joker story that's not in that film. So I went back. When we reviewed the 2016 Suicide Squad... I said I bought the novelization, and if there were major differences, I'd do a books and nachos on it. And I read that book, and there were not major differences. There's not an hour of the Joker? 
There's a lot more of the Joker, but it didn't feel major. But based on everything David Iyer had said, I went back and I re-reread this novelization for this review. Because the thing with novelizations is studios really don't give a fuck. They are going to hire a cheap person and give them an early script, and that's why you end up with things like an octopus in the Goonies novelization, or shapeshifters in the Dream Warriors novelization. So I've seen people online like offering big money for the shooting script of the Suicide Squad because they want to know what David Iyer did. And I went back, I reread this. The biggest difference is one of tone. Mm-hmm. Gotta be. As Jacob said when we reviewed that movie, they hired the company that did the trailer for Suicide Squad and just hired them to recut the entire movie to be more like the trailer that they'd sold. But if you read the book, it is far more harsh in tone. You know, some of the stuff that we saw in rock video montage were long, drawn-out scenes of prison torture. It had the same beats. It had the same Harley Quinn but there was quite a bit more Joker to it as Joker was working more to disrupt the plans there. And so it was more cohesive. And would it have been a better movie? I don't know, because you run the risk of taking away one of the good things about that movie, which was its vibe. It carried you along on a pop soundtrack with everything up to and including Sucker for Pain and all of that that made the movie feel fun. The thing about the book is there is no fun, and the villain is still Enchantress, so you're stuck with that. Because the movie is so fragmented, the things that stand out to me are its worst elements. But it is overall kind of mediocre. I don't think the movie is as terrible as I experienced it back then, but I do think it's frustratingly broken apart by good and bad ideas. And I don't know, Arnie, I would rather have a consistent tone than some fun here and there that is scattershot and amounts to them battling that enchantress. You wanted them to play together. And what never comes clean in any part of the movie is the idea that Margot Robbie and Will Smith and Alligator and the Firestarter guy all want to party together. It felt like everyone was trying to do their own movie and it just never gelled. I agree with that. And unfortunately, I think David Iyer is no Zack Snyder. There are not legions of fans devoted to David Iyer. There's no Iyer fans review bombing this film? No, they're not. There are some DC fans who are trying the hashtag release the Iyer cut because you gave them a taste of victory with the Snyder cut. Now they want this. I think what we're seeing with this movie is DC saying, forget the Iyer cut. Forget we did a movie in 2016. Yes. Yeah, this is your Iyer cut. (laughs) We're just going to try again because what they wanted in 2016, I said again and again, was Guardians of the Galaxy. And even though that wasn't at all the film Iyer made, that's what they sold in the trailer and that's what they tried to recut the movie into was bad guys doing good things while laughing about it like Guardians. So if the first film couldn't be forced into a Guardians of the Galaxy mold, hey, let's just take the director of Guardians of the Galaxy. You guys did bring up Guardians a lot. I never even made that connection watching the movie. Well, it's because of the trailers they released to make it look like Guardians, to look like an exact copy of it with the music and everything. They had buyer's remorse. They made one movie and then they regretted it and wished they had made something more fun. 
And yeah, would it have been better to have been in its original incarnation, dark and grisly? We may never know. But now we are finally getting the fun version that they wanted to make in 2016. Do you think Marvel regrets this? I don't remember exactly what James Gunn did or said on social media to make people lose faith in him. But I know that this is a common problem of certainly if you're going to have someone look at Guardians of the Galaxy. It's full of risky jokes and such. I mean, he he made some bad jokes decades ago and some alt-right personalities dug it up and said, Disney, is this really who you want? After the Guardian films came out, like it was all after the fact. It was all revenge because James Gunn said some mean things about Donald Trump. And James Gunn, when they hired him, said... You know, I used to think I was a shock comedian. And just so you guys know, I mean, I went out there, I said stuff, I did stuff. Right. And that's what I wanted to emphasize is like, he did say those things. They didn't mischaracterize them. Mm, They mischaracterized them. They were jokes and they try to sell it as real pedophilia. I got attacked for defending him by dozens of people on Twitter because I supported James Gunn. They would not accept that he was making jokes. I imagine that that gets very personal, but I do think, just to put a fine point on this, you have to be willing to take those risks if you're going to make an outlandish comedy. You have to offend. You have to realize that people are not going to forgive you for some of the things you say in order to risk having a funny movie. To have a truly outrageous movie, you're going to piss people off. And nowadays, those people have more power because social media allows them to create campaigns against you. So I guess the people that you stomp on when you tell your jokes can get back at you, and that's what happened. James Gunn has been very open that he had a huge period of severe depression because when this happened, and then when he was let go from Disney so publicly... He really had a bit of a breakdown, thinking he would never work again. And, I mean, why would you not think that at that point, right? The entire internet, that's how the mind works. The entire internet is against you. Disney has fired you. You're toxic. Who's going to want to ever work with you again? And truthfully... He doesn't say this, but I believe DC saved his life because the depression he describes is so black that I believe the only way out of it from my readings of his description would be suicide or suicide squad because DC called him up and said, if Marvel doesn't want you, come on over. Yeah, we don't mind the tweets because we're in desperate need of a hit. Yeah, and I just want to underline that, yes, embarrassing for sure, losing stature, being shamed. No one likes to be fired. It's very public. It's very humiliating. But he had made so much money with his previous films, someone was going to hire him. It was just kind of a surprise that it was the competition. Well, you you can understand why he would think that they wouldn't. Hollywood is dog-eat-dog. I understand it is very humiliating, but I would say that if he had a good agent, that agent would have told him, you will definitely work again. Obviously, you make too much money. Everyone, look, the way the internet works is you get put in the penalty box. No one is ever canceled. You just have to sit it out for a little bit, and then they let you get back on the ice and complete the hockey game or beat up on someone, whatever you want to do. But it's only a timeout. It's never a cancel. Well, Marvel's loss was DC's gain, And they swept in and hired him for a Suicide Squad sequel, which, again, made sense in my mind. That's what they wanted from the start. And man, did Disney suddenly have a change of heart. No, James, come back to us. Guardians 3. And 
James was like, well, I already signed. I'll do Guardians 3 after the Suicide Squad. Which I respect. I like the fact that he didn't like run immediately back to his, what he wanted to make. He recognized that, yes, DC had taken a risk and he wanted to reward them by at least giving them one movie. He's not going to spearhead the next Suicide Squad installments, but he was going to do this. The DC brass say they have many plans with James Gunn for the future. Okay. He's doing Guardians 3, and he has said since Guardians 1 that if he's lucky enough to do three Guardians, that would be his out. He envisions it as a trilogy, but DC says that they're talking to him about many projects. Is it another Suicide Squad? Is it other things? James Gunn has friends on now both sides of the aisle. Right, as a lot of them do now. I feel like more and more uh, artists are allowed to collaborate with both. But what do you retain? That's the interesting question is, okay, you have this quote-unquote hit movie that no one even really likes that much. What do you want to keep? The obvious choice is Margot Robbie. She's the star. She's No one would accept a Suicide Squad without Harley Quinn. But who else? Did they try to get Will Smith and he said no, and then they called Idris? Because they got a character just like Will Smith's. Yeah, it's obvious that this could be Deadshot, this blood sport. Yeah, I mean, they even changed his backstory to be like more like Deadshot's and Will Smith's version. Well, producer Peter Safran said that they did approach Will Smith. Yeah. But he says that the people at DC and James knew well before it was publicly announced that James was going to be brought back to do Guardians 3. So they had to kind of move up and rush production on this film. They had to start shooting in September 2019, and Will Smith had, quote-unquote, scheduling issues. So Yeah, what, what do you mean, what's the last thing he did, Gemini Man? Quote-unquote, scheduling problems is the same as, quote-unquote, creative differences in Hollywood speak. But the, he did also say it's nice to help separate it from the first movie in a greater fashion. But it feels like the script was written for Deadshot and they just changed it to Bloodsport. I think you'd want Will again. I honestly think he was pretty good in the part. He just didn't play with others very well. They told Gunn when they hired him, you can use whoever you want in this movie. You don't have to use anyone. It would be kind of nice if you used Harley Quinn, but you don't have to. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. And this does feel to me like a sequel with several of returning characters playing the same roles. Jai Courtney's back. Yeah, if you bring Jai Courtney back as Captain Boomerang, to me, you're telling me that first movie happened, that first movie matters, but we're not going to be so beholden to it that we have to have that team back. And even back in the day, they said if they made a sequel, it might not be that team. It wouldn't be Killer Croc again, and it wouldn't be... Diablo again they'd bring back some and not bring back others I think my philosophy would be you bring the Oscar luster if they've ever been nominated or won you want them Margot Robbie Will Smith and Viola Davis you definitely retain okay I was sitting here like Jay Courtney was nominated for an Oscar no no you don't need him and you don't need flag they were the surprises I didn't think that you would go back to them at all and after the Birds of Prey movie, I didn't know whether they would try to work them in as well. But I guess nobody wanted it. That was just seen as a, a failed experiment. Well, this movie was made before Birds of Prey 
came out. I mean, this right. movie was supposed to come out a few months after Birds of Prey. We were going to have a year of Harley. So the fact that the Birds of Prey aren't here, Margot Robbie said she likes the fact that much like the comic books, Harley Quinn could just show up in these different things and you don't have to worry about her continuity or anything else. Just put Harley Quinn in a bunch of disparate adventures and not worry about it. Every film will have a different tone, have a different take. Did they want her here though? It seems like while she was the star of her first two movies, I forgot she was in this one for about a good 20 minutes. Yeah, when she showed up, I'm like, oh yeah, Harley Quinn, that's still a thing. Well, again, that box office for her, what I call her solo movie, it was also launching a Birds of Prey team. But I ultimately, I think it's remembered as her, you know, if she was stealing the spotlight in Suicide Squad, it was letting her, you know, do anything she wanted in a solo film. And I think it was too much. I mean, I think all our reviews were, this is just way too much of, of a good thing. We liked her, and now we hate her. But overall, it didn't warm my heart to going back to Suicide Squad. When I was faced with the prospect of a reboot, sequel, whatever we want to call this, I don't want to do it again. And yet you went to IMAX. By request. Because you were having difficulty driving, (laughs) manipulating doors, I felt like someone needed to physically go and see this in large screen format. They did hand out a comic book, as they're wont to do on opening night, And it did sort of tell you what the other team members from the original movie were doing as part of this Project Starfish. They are still involved somehow, barely. Katana's out there somewhere? She is second in command. She is Flag's (laughs) right-hand man now. Yeah, it was funny to see Killer Croc. Even June Moon is back. Oh, no! She didn't turn into (laughs) Enchantress, but she is still part of the team, which I would really think you wouldn't want. Why couldn't they have all died with that second team at the opening of this film? (laughs) Yeah, it was them going to space and starting to research what I imagine to be the plot of this movie. But it also had a side story about Deadshot contracted to kill Bruce Wayne, but teaming up with Batman to save his daughter. Like, that seemed to be what they wanted to push was Deadshot, because he was, theoretically anyway, the star of the first movie that is completely absent from this one. I'm surprised they came up with something original because I know they have an ongoing Suicide Squad. I think it's on like number five or six right now comic going on where they've with a lot of this team that we're going to talk about and they've like redone their origins to like, I guess, simplify them because that's one thing this film does. Just simply everyone's just got a bad dad in this film. Does James Gunn have a bad dad? He seems to talk a lot about bad dads. It has a misfit family quality. Like I do feel like this is. The family you create when you come from a dysfunctional household. Sort of the legacy of Tim Burton, really, is like if you're the awkward goth that never fit into your suburbia, you can join Suicide Squad. They're not bad guys, per se. They're just misunderstood and and their own kind of Adam's family. I did watch this on HBO Max. I'm very grateful to HBO Max this week. I wish I could see this in IMAX. I mean, James Gunn's a techno head when it comes to film tech. This was filmed entirely in IMAX. I believe the way to watch this is in IMAX. But in order to record this review this weekend, I have not had a chance to see it in IMAX. So I watched it twice at home for free, which it can't be great for the movie's box office that I can do that. But it's what I did. I'll say this much. I really appreciate it. I didn't watch the movie twice. I saw my IMAX and that was it. 
but I left before the end stinger. I'm like, I'll just watch that at home. And it got me out of the parking lot first. So I appreciate it for that reason. <laughs> Leave right when the credits start and then watch the credits at home. That's what you're recommending. <laughs> exactly. Those eight minutes of credits, I just didn't want to do it. Well, I watched all the credits at home as well as the film. I watched it on HBO Max as well, like Arnie. Yeah, I agree. This seems to be the new world. You can go and have your big screen theater experience, or you could stay home and you're not a pirate. You're not a bum. You're not a, a thief. Is James Gunn an A-list name? I know he did two Guardians films. He's A-list to geeks, I think. Yes. All of the trailers say from the horribly twisted mind of James Gunn, which, I mean, is embracing his Twitter cancellation, I think. But I'm like, this isn't like Martin Scorsese or Steven Spielberg, you know, even Zack Snyder to be like from James Gunn. I'm like, is he a name above your title director? I feel like they probably want to say, hey, from the guy from Guardians, but I don't know if they, one, if they can do that, if they, two, want to do that because it's a competitor. Like, I feel that is the selling point. People know James Gunn because of Guardians and that's it. Yeah, and I want to just point out, beyond Guardians, his stuff hasn't really been a hit. Super, we covered. Slither, these were box office failures. He did that evil Superman movie. He produced it. It was not a good film. Ooh, not good. Yeah. No, it was, I hoped I had high hopes for that, and no. So I feel like his track record is largely, look what he did for Guardians of the Galaxy, and, you know, that it should be enough. Again, that movie was the true surprise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Nobody knew what to expect from that, and it ended up being the most obscure characters becoming some of the most beloved. So maybe he can pull that magic trick. Let's find out. Arnie, give him the plot to the new Suicide Squad. When a military coup overthrows the government of Corto Maltese, the new rulers discover a secret. The Americans, in conjunction with the previous ruling regime, had secretly been using the small South American country to contain and study a dangerous extraterrestrial. This information about illegal American experimentation cannot be publicly known, and the powerful, mind-controlling alien cannot be left in the hands of Cortal Maltese's new ruler. As such, the only team suited for this job is Task Force X, colloquially known as the Suicide Squad. Viola Davis returns as ruthless task force leader Amanda Waller, who bribes, blackmails, and cajoles imprisoned, super-powered criminals to join this team. For the Cordo Maltese mission, Waller sends two teams. The first team comprises such DC super-villains? Looking to you, Jacob. (laughs) Losers. I mean, the Suicide Squad was never a a team of A-list ones. That's why they're on the Suicide Squad. DC had all these leftover villains when they combined their multiverse into one. So yeah, let's get all these D-listers and just kill them off. Weasel is barely alive when he gets on the chopper. Weasel, they did a to- total redesign. In the comics, just a dude that wears a suit, like a weasel. Like, now he's like a mutant. I'd never heard of the detachable kid, played by Nathan Fillion. Well, because in the comic, he's Arm Fall Off Boy from the 30th century. Legion of Superheroes. He, he should have kept that name, Arms Fall Off Boy. I thought he might be your new hero, Arnie. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Boomerang, a returning Jay Courtney. Blackguard, played by Pete Davidson. Harley Quinn, played by Margot Robbie. And is led by Joel Kinnaman's returning character, Colonel Rick Flagg. That team is sent to support the Corto Maltese rebels who want to instill a democratic government. But the team is also a diversion for a second team. Sharpshooter Bloodsport, played by Idris Elba 
is the leader of the team sent to destroy the American research facility. His squad is Sharpshooter Peacemaker, played by John Cena, Polka Dot Man, played by David Dastmalchian, an anthropomorphic shark called King Shark, voiced by Sylvester Stallone, and Ratcatcher 2, who can speak to and control rats, played by Daniela Melchior. They're tasked with capturing the lead scientist studying the alien, known as The Thinker, played by Peter Capaldi. Then they will use The Thinker to get into the lab, known as Jotunheim, and blow it up. Kept thinking Thor was going to show up with that name. Jotunheim. Oh my god, I, I just kept thinking Idris Elbow was Heimdall. That's right. I mean, he's going to Jotunheim, it's Idris Elba. I'm like, wait, didn't you leave the Marvel Universe? Along the way to Jotunheim, they encounter Rick Flagg, the only surviving member of the first task force. But then they discover Harley Quinn also survived and was taken to the new president of Corto Maltese to be his bride. The team goes to rescue Harley, only to find out she killed the president and all his guards and was walking out on her own. With the two new team members, they kidnap Thinker and break into Jotunheim, but while planting explosives, Flag finds proof that the U.S. was behind the alien research. When Flag says that info will be made public, he's killed by Peacemaker, who Waller tasked with keeping that data secret. Peacemaker was also going to kill Ratcatcher, who witnessed Flag's murder, but Ratcatcher is saved by Bloodsport, who proves he's the better marksman when he shoots Peacemaker. Or just has smaller bullets. <laughs> In the chaos, the captured alien, a giant starfish called Starro, escapes. It shoots out little starfish, which latch onto human faces and take control of the victim's body. Starro kills Thinker and starts a rampage on the island nation. Waller tells the team, don't worry about it. Their mission's complete, but against orders... The team decide to fight against the giant starfish. Polka Dot Man is killed in the fight, but Bloodsport, King Shark, and Harley Quinn hurt the alien. But it's Ratcatcher who summons all the rats on this vermin-infested island and who defeats Starro when her rats bite the alien to death. And Bloodsport blackmails Waller, saying the four survivors are to be set free where the footage of the Americans' part in Project Starfish will be made public as credits roll to a scene showing that Weasel survived, and then a second scene showing Peacemaker also survived his gunshot wounds and is needed to help save the world, or at least HBO Max subscriptions. So, based on that plot summary, can I just point out, we're watching Guardians of the Galaxy 3, Peacemaker is Drax, King Shark is Groot, Ratcatcher 2 is Nebula, Bloodsport is Star-Lord, the little rat Sebastian is baby Groot. I mean, I feel like James Gunn has a template and did not stray from it. I, I don't know. Suicide Squad has always been a team of misfits. I, I Just because he's done other teams of misfits, I don't think that definitely means there's a template going on. Yeah, I, I thought King Shark is Groot. I thought Ratcatcher and Sebastian were kind of a combined rocket. But yes, absolutely. Sure, Jacob, there are lots of misfits, but there's no edge to these people. They're all goofballs. They all have the comic stylings of the Guardians crew. And that's what DC paid for. That's what they wanted him to do. I think it's what you guys were saying you wanted from the team in 2016. So this is a good idea, right? Just remake DC and Marvel's image. I mean, were people expecting a dark, gritty polka dot man? <laughs> if Zack Snyder were still involved with this kind of stuff, we wouldn't have some of these characters. I do not want the Snyder cut of Polka Dot Man. 
Yeah, we wouldn't even have them. They wouldn't even be allowed to be here. He wouldn't want there to be a focus on absurdity the way that James Gunn loves to pick out. You know, he likes losers. You know, he shares with Tim Burton the idea that superheroes are losers and weirdos and freaks. And I like the villains more than the heroes. So, like, give me the weirdest, most obscure villain, and that's who's going to be my hero. But I have always argued, and I think they've retained this aspect, the real villain is Amanda Waller. And we see right from the get-go here, she's reestablished as someone that is willing to sacrifice a whole bunch of people so that she can get the real team to the beach safely. Like, she creates a team of decoys, and we spend a lot of time thinking that Michael Rooker is going to be a part of this Suicide Squad only so that they could be wiped out. Yeah, Michael Rooker, good friend of James Gunn's. Gunn almost didn't do Guardians 3 just because he never wanted to make a film without Michael Rooker. But here, yeah, we get Johnny Cash playing Folsom Prison Blues as we just watch Michael Rooker throw a racquetball around and kill a bird. And I'm like, here's the thing. The trailers told me, who was going to die. Because if you watch the trailers, there's a lot of scenes with Idris Elba and King Shark and Harley Quinn and not a lot of scenes with Pete Davidson and Michael Rooker and Weasel. Yeah, so I knew that this guy was not going to be a main, main character, but we're going to spend quite a bit of time showing he can really hit marks with a racquetball before getting into things. Who is Savant? I didn't really even get that. Other than, you know, he's wearing the orange crocs on his feet and hair down to his knees, this awful wig. I don't know what he was a Savant of. Throwing balls? In the comics, he's kind of like a Batman knockoff. He was another rich orphan that decided to become a vigilante and trained and had run-ins with Batman and even, I think, worked with the Birds of Prey from time to time. But here, they don't really define him at all, except, I'm like, I don't know, maybe he's a marksman? That's why he could kill that bird? There's a lot of bird violence in this film. It's weird. I'm not sure why James Gunn hates birds so much. Well, he gets revenge on the end. We will see floating in the ocean. Savant's corpse will have the bird land on it and peck his headless neck. But we get a whole birdcage set on fire. A lot of violence against birds. Mm, I'm not against it. I'll be honest. I'm not a bird fan, but (laughs) I'm not an advocate for them being lit on fire. Anyway, uh, yeah, what Michael Rooker is going to do is tell people that might have missed the first movie or forgotten the first movie very quickly what the Suicide Squad is all about and establishing the whole... We put a bomb in your neck, you work for Amanda Waller, you do the dirty work of America no one is to find out about, they'll disown you if you try to go public. Uh, We get it really, really fast, and I think it's helpful to have the recap, and I think it's helpful to also show that this Suicide Squad, Arnie, you could prep me, but this was going to be one where people actually did die. It's going to earn that name because it's going to have a high body count. Yeah, Artie, you talk about this whole team. You know they're dead meat. I wasn't so sure they were all dead meat. I figure Savant Rooker here, he was doing a cameo. He's like that guy that climbs ropes in the first one that they actually have to kill, like to show that they're a suicide squad. I'm like, okay, he's going to die off. Maybe a few other of these, but I didn't expect like Captain Boomerang to go. Like I remember him kind of being the comedic outlet for that first one. So yeah, keep him around. But no, I'm surprised they're going to kill this entire team except one or two of them. I was shocked when I saw Captain Boomerang was in this team. Because Captain Boomerang and Flag were both in the trailers quite a bit. And Jay Courtney was pretty high up in the billing. I'm like, 
maybe he'll survive this when Captain Boomerang dies. It actually shocked me. It did, yeah. It was the one death that caught me off guard. But no, I knew this team was coming up for death, although... That team of B-listers could have made a very interesting movie. I like Pete Davidson, both from his movies and his SNL stuff. I'd be interested in seeing him as some kind of villain. I don't know, yeah, who Saffron is. I intentionally didn't look up any of these people. Come on, I, I want more Javelin, the German Olympian who somehow became a supervillain because he throws Javelins. Mongal. Yeah, Mongal was funny. She reminded me of like an extra from one of the Wonder Woman films. and You have people in the office, like Viola Davis is doing her stern, I never crack a joke stuff, but like all her underlings are running around placing bets and hoping she doesn't notice that like, for them, this is a, it's a game, you know, like who's going to live is something that they build into this opening here as they're prepping the chopper. But if you watched that first movie, you would think that this was the team. You really would, because, you know, Harley Quinn is here. So you just accept that these are the people. The only people that died last time were a bunch of grape heads. So I just wouldn't have the mentality that this one, I had forgotten it was R-rated. I think that was part of it. I had forgotten that they were going to have more room to be more violent and more iconoclastic. But James Gunn plays with that expectation too. This team gets the slow motion hero walk shot as they all go towards the chopper. Giant flag behind them, yes, sure. James Gunn loves to build up expectations that he can then undercut. That is his favorite gag. But as far as this team, could they have worked? Uh, you know, they seem a little bit rough. Certainly when we see the powers going and we find out that TDK, yeah, like the, the hands just fly off and get like slappy. Oh, come on. It starts great with Weasel as they all drop out of their airplane to parachute down and like Weasel can't even swim. And of course they're dropping down into the ocean. I really do want more Weasel though. I liked Weasel's design. You're going to get him. He's still alive. I mean, he looked like he had mange. He's got these bulging eyes. And it is Gunn's brother doing the motion capture for him. Yeah, and we're going to see him outside of a mocap suit a little bit later as one of the guards. I mean, it's a family affair with James Gunn, Nathan Fillion, Michael Rooker, Sean Gunn. I mean, they had some free time thanks to COVID. They couldn't go to conventions anymore and sign. So might as well show up in the film here. Apparently Pete Davidson is already like been villainous. He has cut a deal with this island that they're supposedly secretly invading and warned the soldiers that are waiting in the trees that he's delivered this team, that he thinks that he has cut a deal that will honor his freedom. I don't know what they're going to do for him with the bomb in his neck, but uh, it's also kind of a surprise that, yes, his, he's the first one to go, I think. After Weasel. Well, yes, all right, Weasel. But after his duplicity is repaid by getting a gun blast to the face, we get a whole montage of just basically spectacular deaths set to a punk song that really just, again, if you hadn't been thinking about Guardians, the use of the music, right? Johnny Cash and, and all of that. It really, it has a music video quality, but it feels more cohesive and it doesn't feel more like that old cassette that Quill was playing in those last two movies. James Gunn does not stray far in the jukebox, though. I mean, Johnny Cash, an old song, Now All the People Who Died, song I love, but from the, what was that, early 80s, maybe mid-80s, so, but it is a great start-off to this film. 
Because I thought they were going to start off with a different song. When they were approaching that alien, you hear the score go boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, they're playing Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. <laughs> no, but the surviving Beastie Boys ought to sue this composer because he ripped off Sabotage so much that I stayed for the credits to see if the Beastie Boys were credited as doing part of the score. Didn't notice, but I know soundtracks are important to you. I defer to your ear as to whether this score is acceptably rocking or not. What I noticed mostly about the music is it trades in that nostalgia that Gunn lives off of. That this does feel like we're not going to have new hits. Like the first Suicide Squad had it that whatever 21 Pilots song and Wiz Khalifa and all of that. They're not going to promote new artists. This is all about the past. And again, these people are all a little bit older too. They're not going with 20 something buff actors. They're going with clowns that haven't worked in a little while. Jay Courtney is offended in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, he's here to just destroy your expectations because we didn't know what he was capable of after the first movie. He was sort of overlooked. This could have been an opportunity to make him more central. And it's more letting you know, we're not going to do that old movie again. At least he gets kills with the boomerangs, though. I mean, he slices a head open. Yeah, which I'm like, oh, is this R-rated? Oh, it is R-rated. I don't think we've had a proper R-rated. Maybe some of those director cuts had R ratings, but this is our first like R-rated DC film, right? I couldn't remember. Was Birds of Prey R? Oh, I guess Birds of Prey was R-rated. That didn't stand out to me as an R-rated film. Wow, no, such a Pee-wee's Playhouse movie. I just, it was so kiddy, but I guess there were things that were offensive, maybe. But the fact that Harley Quinn was here, she's grabbing that bazooka, she's blowing up helicopters. I'm like, okay, she's going to go on one of her crazy terrors and save this team. So that was the shock. Like, yeah, you see Boomerang's arm, like in a pile of bodies, like not moving. Like everyone does get taken out, but they caught me off guard. Like I didn't think this was the team we were going to watch the whole time, but I didn't expect this slaughter. The detachable kid though was hysterical with just trying to slap people. Then they start (laughs) shooting the arms and he's writhing in pain because his arms are being shot. Yeah, we didn't even know with this, you know, TDK, we didn't even know what his power was going to be. So it was a funny reveal. He's a criminal. It's torture, death, kill, right? No. No, the detachable kid. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was far less cool than he had been promised. And again, that's what Gunn wants to do. Like, if he can make you think something's going to be badass and then it turns out silly, he's won. But it is kind of a badass move of Amanda Waller. I just want to emphasize, she set all these people up to die, including Flag. That's kind of a shocker that she would throw him under the bus. Yeah, I feel like this Waller is much more in line with the tough gal in the comics. Like, she stared down Batman in those comics. Like, I never got that vibe how tough she was in these films until this one. Like, she's going to do some real evil stuff when we get to Bloodsport. But this Waller, even though it's the same actress, has been improved. Viola Davis is amazing in this movie because she makes me believe that she is so tough and so ruthless. I wouldn't say evil, but ruthless in trying to get what is needed for America's interests. Later on, she's going to have a scene that so many actors would have just failed at that she commands the screen during. I really like her, but I do feel we're getting a repeat of that first movie in certain ways when Savant is going to make a run for it. He's the only person left. I don't know what he could have done. 
and she's going to blow up his head like she blew up Slipknot's in the first movie as a way to show, hey, we're serious. If you don't do what we say, we're going to blow your head up. Right. But was this team slated to die by Waller? Yes. Oh, yeah. I got the impression this team was there. It was a diversion, but it was also there to get with the Rebels, which is what Flag's eventually going to do. And then Pete Davidson's criminal... Who is he in the comics, Jacob? Blackguard, Booster Gold. We're going to get a Booster Gold movie. Is that coming? Booster Gold's a time traveler. He's a janitor from the future that takes superhero tech from the future and goes to the past to become a celebrity. And Blackguard, he, he's amongst those villains. He's uh, the Illuminati. They're called the Thousand. He's, he's part of that group. Okay, well, he sold them out. And so that's why I thought it was such a slaughter. I didn't know if Amanda would really send all these people, including Flag just to die. Oh yeah, I figured she's the one who hooked Blackguard up with whoever he squealed on. Like, she's the one that set up that whole betrayal. Yes. She knew all about that because that allows all the soldiers to be ready there on that beach, unaware that on a beach north of that, all of this action, we're going to see. They're going to roll up on an empty beach with explosions way in the distance and have no idea that that Bloodsport, none of these people know that there is even another team. There's no idea that they're going to hook up with them or that maybe that they'll, someone will pull through. That other team is dead meat. Waller wanted them all to be wiped out. The rebels, she didn't want them involved. I think she wanted them more than the current government because the current government couldn't be trusted with Project Starfish. No, she is here to wipe out U.S. involvement in a secret project, and that is it. Whoever's in charge of this island is irrelevant. Yeah, much like real-life politics. Oh, you democratically elected a socialist? We can't have that. We don't like socialism. Let's get our military puppet government in there. Like, Stuart, if you wanted that 80s black ops CIA stuff going on, like, I feel this storyline really leans into that if you know your American history. Agreed. That was a delight of this movie was that it takes America's actual history uh, seriously enough to air some of our dirty laundry and what we do in South America. That was pretty risky, and I thought it was necessary. And again, you want Waller to be a villain. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a black ops mission, right? It would just be superheroes fighting bad guys. This has to be America embarrassed about something and using a throwaway disposable team of villains to yeah cover things up and so now we understand that yeah america is not clean and that thus we should suspect john cena right we should think that anyone that was so patriotic he's the only one of this b team that i think that is not a criminal right he's actually a superhero No, he's a criminal. He's in jail. Yeah, again, they've kind of retconned him in the comics. The interesting thing about Peacemaker is he's not originally from D.C. He comes from Charlton, who they also had Blue Beetle. They had The Question, Mm -hmm. who Alan Moore turned into Rorschach, into The Owl, and Peacemaker was the comedian. Like, this is the template for the comedian. Ah, I can see that now. Yeah, but when he was brought into the D.C. universe, he feels like kind of an absurd character. Like, his dad was a... Nazi death commander who is responsible for 50,000 people's deaths. And like he, before the dad goes to jail, he's like, I'm not going to jail. I'm going to shoot myself. And he does it in front of a five-year-old peacemaker who it kind of turns him crazy. And so, yes, he goes to extreme measures to keep the peace, which means killing people if he has to. There's that whole uh, irony there. 
So he is a convict. I did not, I could, we, you know, the movie has the wild structure of a Tarantino jumping around in time, feels a bit like the emancipation of Harley Quinn in that respect. Not as clean as Tarantino. The first time I watched this, I was feeling very disjointed with its three days earlier, eight days later type thing. Yeah. No, I, I think that you are supposed to feel that way the first time. It is about feeling punch drunk and like, wait, what? How did that happen? But yeah, it, once we get a better handle on the timeline, we realize that it was never going to be that other team. It was going to be Idris Elba, who is scrubbing toilet. They love to do this game where the lettering of three days earlier is soap suds on a toilet rim or something like that. And they'll insert within the scene the titling to give it an extra goofy quality. My favorite was Saffron's Blood becoming Warner Brothers Presents. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, they're just, it's a way of drawing attention to itself. Postmodernism, having a lot of fun. Don't take this too seriously, winking at the audience directly. But yeah, this could be Will Smith, right? This blood sport feels dead shot in every way, including the fact that he has a daughter who now is mixed up in crime. She stole a style watch. And, and that's what I'm talking about. That's where it feels like they were just copying the Deadshot's origin here. Because Bloodsport, he does, you know, it's not just, oh, I have a daughter and they use that against me to... I mean, he's got a whole origin story as a Doftradger in Vietnam and his brother takes his place and gets maimed and gets, like, all his limbs blown off. So Bloodsport goes crazy and then Lex Luthor recruits him. He does put Superman, like, he does shoot Superman with a kryptonite bullet. This feels very familiar. And maybe it's just a trope that is easy for mainstream audiences to show allegiance to. A dad that's doing everything for his daughter is always sympathetic. Whatever he might have done in his criminal background, we will stand by Idris Elba because, you know, one, he's Idris Elba. He's cool. And two, he's doing it for family. Yeah, and I appreciate how evil they make Waller in this film. Like, she threatens to throw this daughter who's 16 and got caught stealing a watch. Like, we're going to throw her in the same prison because this is Louisiana and you could be tried as an adult. And, of course, that's his motivation to finally join the squad. I mean, she's threatening to have the daughter killed because this prison has the highest mortality rate. And if his daughter comes in here, she's going to kill the daughter. And one of her employees is like... You wouldn't really do that. And she's like, you'd be surprised the things I'll do. So yeah, if Bloodsport didn't go along with this, his daughter would be murdered by Waller. That's harsh. And, you know, she doesn't blink when he comes at her for that reason. Like He'll grab a pencil and threaten to jab it into her neck. And she's like, this is more important. It makes this mission feel, wow, if she's willing to lay down her own life because whatever they got to do, these are the stakes we are misled into thinking that they're going to save the world when in fact all they're really doing is covering up uh, a dirty secret of American scientific experimentation, which feels a lot like Nazi Mingala experimentation once we get there. But if this is such an important mission, blood sport's a good choice. I do love that she's like, the team is made up for each of their individual qualifications and then introduces Peacemaker with the exact same word she used when describing Deadshot, only reversing the order of the sentences is that in his hands, anything's a lethal weapon. And then some description of the father is what caused the 
person to become so. Yeah, they both have neglectful fathers. They're the same character. I thought that was a funny joke. And Idris Elba calling her on it. You said everybody has their unique skills. This guy is me. And we're going to find out very late in the movie why there's two sharpshooters is because Peacemaker's even more in Waller's pocket than anybody. But yeah, I, I laughed out loud at that. That's why I thought maybe he was a soldier and not a criminal. That's why he felt like a plant. And like, you know, maybe like Nick Cage and Con Air. Like, he's not really one of them. He's delusional enough to think he is a good guy. That That's Peacemaker's thing. And John Cena is a human cartoon, I've come to believe. I mean, he can move his jaw in such a way that it looks more like a stylized comic book drawing <laughs> than a human being. Can I say what a difference a director makes? Like, this is a guy in F9. I'm like, awful, wooden. Why would you hire him? Never want to see him again. And he's fun here. Like, he's got a sense of humor. He could pull this off. Yeah, I mean, I've, I feel like the new generation of He-Men are better than ours. Like, you know, if you go back to the 80s, those people were really bad actors. I feel like The Rock and Cena and Batista, all those guys have a, a sense of humor about themselves and... Uh, but after F9, my expectations were low for Cena. I, again, recommended for me for being a bad movie, but, you know, to each their own. Yes. Cena was not great as a villain in that movie. Here he gets to play with villainy wrapped in patriotism. The whole joke is that, you know, he's a fascist, but in his mind, he's just a patriot that loves America. Yeah, he'll eat a bunch of dicks to bring peace about. But wouldn't you send somebody better than the polka dot man on this mission if it was so important? I couldn't believe Polka Dot Man was going to be in this because in the comic, he like came about in the 60s in Batman when Batman comics were at their worst because of the comic code. You know, Batman's thing, it was fighting gangsters. And then the comic code's like, can't have gangsters anymore. Can't have real life crime. And so, yeah, he's got to fight aliens and the Polka Dot Man, a dude who just made a suit that's covered in different color polka dots and each polka dot turns into a different thing. Here they, again, they streamline everything. He's just, he's got some interdimensional virus and he pukes polka dots and that's his power. Uh, which, again, James Gunn, when you think about raccoons with rockets and trees that talk and all of this, is the kind of absurdity that he loves. Uh, David Desmalchian, we just saw him, like, always got, having something weird, freaky with his face. He was the biggest impression of the girl in the spider's web, is what he does to his face. If you remember, he's the guy that oh. yeah, pulls out his jaw and his eye and nose and all of that. I mean, this guy, he, he was one of the Joker's goons in The Dark Knight. He's done a lot of voice acting in these cartoons. He's been in the Flash TV show. Like, he's got some ties to the DC universe. I'm sure that he was real, I but I didn't think he was made up. But again, I think Gunn would be, like, offered a lot of cool people and be like, oh, I'm not interested in heroicism. Please, no. Don't, don't give me anything that looks like cool. I want stupid. I want loser. I want freak. And so Abner Krill is here for that reason. And we'll find out he's got mother issues that he's trying to work through. Arnie, you had prepped us. We we had talked about this movie off air and you had told us that he was the Trojan horse, that he would be brought in here as sort of a background character, but would become the heart of this movie. So I kind of approached him from that standpoint. I thought he might be Yondo in Guardians 2. I was like, okay, he's going to start off stupid, but by the end, he's going to have me crying. Did he? No. <laughs> okay, because James Gunn did say about him, he wanted to find some of the worst villains and see if he could make them 
somebody you would really care for. And Polka Dot Man was the biggest one. But he, he was trying to find all the forgotten people in the DC universe. Yeah, I think for a lot of these characters, not all of them, like King Shark, well, even he has his moment. Like, he does go for some big character moments with everyone here. The real one that was trying to play on the sympathies of the audience is Ratcatcher 2. Like, that's where the emotional crux for this film ends up coming through, I think. Agreed. Yeah, they're definitely going to try for a teary moment with her. And they're definitely, it's an outreach. It's both a joke on and a redemption of the millennial stereotype, right? That she's lazy, she's introduced, always wanting to sleep. But at the same time, she's easygoing. She never wants to hold any anything against people when King Shark tries to eat her. She's like, ah, we just need to be friends. Like, I feel like she exemplifies the best and the worst characteristics of millennials and and will become a, a, a secondary hero, a Gamora-level hero. I also liked that she's Ratcatcher 2, really catching that comic trope of, oh, look, we're replacing the villain with their daughter. I mean, that happened with Electro, I think. It definitely happened with the Beetle over in Marvel. There's just a lot of times. Oh, there's so many legacy characters. Or Yeah, it was my cousin, or it was this character, and I'm taking over. I mean, it's such a common thing in comics. But here, her dad's going to be played by Taika Watiti, another Marvel director coming over. Again, these are jokes that I don't think mass audiences are going to get or even want to get. This is stuff for the Comic-Con crowd, right? This, all of that stuff you're highlighting will go over the regular audience. They're supposed to be laughing at John Cena eating dicks and not really get all of this insider stuff. The final character of this crew, and I, I guess another steal for Marvel from Guardians 2, Sylvester Stallone voicing King Shark, who I was most excited about. And look, I haven't read a ton of comics with King Shark, but I have read Gail Simone's Secret Six, which is like a spiritual offshoot of Suicide. Squad. It's a bunch of C and D list villains trying to do anti-hero things. Bane like speed dates on it. It's great. But King Shark, he's just a shark. That's the son of the shark god. He's basically Jesus Shark. And he just runs around saying, I'm a king. I'm a king. I'm a shark. I'm a king shark. Like he <laughs> is as dumb as he is portrayed in this film. And I loved it. Like I know he talks more in other comics, but I want Gail Simone's version where he just says I'm King Shark over and over. Well, that would be too much. I am Groot, right? I mean, that would be just so blatant. But I do love King Shark more than I thought I would. Sylvester Stallone's voice is great. When we're introduced to him with the book upside down, so smart me, enjoy books so much. I mean, I was laughing right away. I like this team of losers. He's so much better than Killer Croc. All right, I'll be the wet blanket then. I feel like some of this is really broad. And maybe it was that I did come to this being burnt out on superheroes and not really wanting another Suicide Squad. But like, yeah, this felt like an obvious redo like kind of a lazy Groot I could have lived without King Shark again all these jokes that book read and it's upside down like that is a it's a pretty Nickelodeon joke and I guess he's got to do that balancing act because even though it's R-rated kids are obviously going to find this movie and you want them to have something to enjoy this definitely feels like the member of the team that is most juvenile and he's not, you know, we keep calling him King Shark, but they, Nawe or something? Like, Nanoe, yeah. I, I'm not calling him that. It's King Shark. I don't know what that means, but he seems to have a proper name and King Shark is sort of the nickname. Yeah, I mean, you're trying to make this somewhat believable. Nanawe, I'm not trying to stereotype, but it sounds a little Hawaiian to me, like the shark came from... Polynesia. He first appeared to fight Superboy in Hawaii in the 90s. Okay, there you go. Yeah. 
Yeah, but Stallone, obviously not Hawaiian. They're playing off his Rocky Balboa simpleton image, right? That's King Shark, not one of my favorites. I'm just saying that was one of the big draws for me. I loved him in that run of comics, so I was looking forward to seeing that version on film. And they are doing a little Tarantino thing, too. They're reintroducing characters we know are going to die. Pete Davidson will walk by and hand Idris Elba the toilet paper scrap from his shoe and... Weasel is there licking glass. Oh, Weasel licking glass. I thought was funny because it just stops. Like, if you've ever had a dog that's licking you and then for some reason the dog just stops and leaves the tongue out. But when Pete Davidson walks past Waller, he gets real nervous and things. How I imagine the real Pete Davidson is when Lorne Michaels walking down the hall. And so, like, he has a secret. Because he's betrayed the team, he's nervous to be around Waller. Like, she could read his thoughts. Yeah, it was interesting to read the crowd's reaction because when they saw Weasel again, they were all like, oh, they didn't laugh. They were like (laughs) sad. I could literally hear like the, we know he's going to die. And yeah, you know his fate now. Yes, exactly. There's a tragic quality to him. I'll say this though. I've praised James Gunn in past reviews, Guardians and Super, which I gave a pass on on a second viewing. I'm starting to feel he's a little one note. Not a little. The gore here feels like gore we saw in Super, and the jokes here feel like jokes he's either done in Super or Slither or Guardians, but I don't feel I saw him stretching, and maybe it's reactionary to having just been fired, but I feel like he's just on crutches. Yeah, he's treading water. He's doing what he's known for, and he isn't trying to... Well, you promised me that there was going to be outreach to pathos and drama and characters that would make you cry. So I knew that would come later. But right now, he's loading you up on toilet humor. And yeah, that works in a trauma movie, but is a little tiresome now that we're on the sequel, The Suicide Squad. Five years later, after so much Deadpool and what have you, this feels... Well, just very familiar. Nothing shocking about it. What surprised me is just how straightforward the story is. Yes, there are flashbacks and whatnot, but usually, you know, I would have thought this island mission, this is the opening act, and then you find out what the real thing, like, no, this is more or less just a linear thing. Like, we're going to get our mission here about South America, and we're just going to go straight forward to the end. Yeah, there's going to be some side missions in that, but I was surprised how flat or just standard or or non-complex this story was that he was telling. I agree. I didn't realize it fully till I was writing the plot summary. And I'm like, if I skip the details of Margot Robbie and I skip the details of rescuing flag, this is we land on an Island. We kidnap the guy. We go to the lab using the guy and we blow up the lab and nothing goes wrong in that regard. I mean, they succeed in virtually everything they set out to do. And so that is strange because usually you'd see them have a plan. The plan doesn't work. They have to improvise. You have a plan B, something like that. And here, yeah, it is very straightforward. And it reminded me of a video game in that you have your mission, but then you have a few side quests. Yeah, you. I think what we're asking for is the model they use for a heist movie, you know, Oceans, where like there's so much intricacy and you need nine people because there are nine different things that have to happen in order for the heist to go off. And here, basically, they can just run through big steel doors by blowing away people and then set bombs and be done. That's a little simplistic. But Jacob, I do think they try to make it feel complex 
by jumping around in time and having all the visual flash that they do. It does feel intricate because it's elaborately staged. He's trying to do something. It was a surprise that, like, they're going to learn their mission right here. You got to go destroy Operation Starfish or Butthole if you're John Cena. And I'm like, well, it's South America, so of course the Americans are involved. Like, they try to treat that as a big reveal later. I'm like, well, no, if you know history, you know this is all to serve American interests. Like, it could use some fine-tuning is what I'm going to say. I'll agree. I think this movie was rushed because of Guardians 3. And I think that a couple of rewrites could have made this feel more like a Dirty Dozen type thing instead of just a bunch of weird characters going from point A to point B. Although, I just to give it perspective, when you think about that first Suicide Squad, where the mission was, one of you is actually the bad guy, and like there was never anything we were hiring you to do, it's just what somebody witched out and took over the subway. Like, this is obviously a better setup. It has just enough real-world politics to feel a little bit edgy, and it's simplistic enough that everyone can follow it. If they're not wanting to be challenged, if they just want to have crude laughs, then they're not going to have to be confused or have it explained to them the way that Tenet was, you know, which no one seems to understand. It's not uh, elaborate, but it's much better. Everything is much better calibrated than it was five years ago. And you're right. Harley Quinn has been minimized. I think that that's a good thing. I think that means when we do see her, we appreciate what she does more. It doesn't become overkill that every scene is her marching in and saying, you know, I'm going to take this over. Just that voice gives me like, ugh, makes me cringe now. (laughs) But now it's kind of cute. She's crushing. She's looking for a guy is her arc in this. She keeps falling in love with people. And at the beginning, it was Javelin because he had an accent and she was going to go with him. And now she's stuck with his Javelin. He dies and she's got to figure out what to do with his spear. But I forgot she was in this movie. I was enjoying the team we had so much. And I'm going to say that for a straightforward movie, at two hours and 13 minutes, this movie is too long. I agree. That was one of my big notes is got to cut 20 minutes. Yeah. I thought that was just me and being tired of superhero movies in general. But you guys who were primed for this movie felt this was too long. Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. Both times I watched it, I'm just like, whew. One too many music videos. Mm -hmm. Like, cut it a little bit, Jim. It's why I didn't watch it twice. I was like, you know what? I probably would learn stuff and pick up nuance, but I just, it's too much. But when it's 40 minutes into this movie that we get back to Harley Quinn and find out what happened to her after the beach. She's been missing for a half an hour, only I wasn't missing her. You could not have her in this movie, and I would have been fine. I was liking the team we had. Which is not to say that it's a distraction or or an unnecessary inclusion to have her side story, just that I agree with you. There was enough going on that I was appreciating that movie without her. Yeah, I'll say that's a win for James Gunn if you can make a successful Harley Quinn movie without Harley Quinn. Not saying that you don't need that character, but you've overcome the fan favorite and been able to replace her with something that people want just as much. Exactly. The first movie, you remove Harley Quinn, you remove my Green Arrow. This movie, when they brought her back in, I got nervous. I'm like, oh boy, I've really liked what we have going on with King Shark and Ratcatcher 2 and Nom Nom. 
And I wasn't upset when they brought Flag back in because they rescue Flag even in this first half hour from the rebels. They go on a murder spree and it turns out they're killing good people. I was thinking that the whole time because we see Flag get captured. I'm like, okay, these are the rebels. These are the true freedom fighters. And then you see this, you know, it reminded me of Hobbs and Shaw when they're going through those hallways to get to the handprint with Peacemaker and Bloodsport killing everyone. I'm like, wait, I'm pretty sure these are good guys. Like, these are good (laughs) rebels. And I thought that was a pretty funny joke once we got there. And I did like some of the kind of dick measuring banter between the two because Peacemaker shoots someone, non-lethal, doesn't count. Boom, exploding bullet. And then there's a line that I just really laughed at. And nobody likes a show off. They do when what they're showing off is dope as fuck. And even Bloodsport has to admit that's true. Yeah, I chuckled at that line. Just John Cena saying dope as fuck was funny. And again, what a difference a director makes. Like, I can believe I was actually giggling at John Cena deliver lines. Exactly my point for bringing this up is John Cena was so good in this moment. It's hard to believe it's the same guy we hated in F9. And I like that it's just casual flamethrowing and things. Yes. Uh, I'm going to say I didn't think it was funny, but I was tricked. I knew that it would be that these were good guys that they had just flambayed to try and outman one another. I knew that that was going to be the punchline, but... It also gave me the impression that these two were becoming friends, that they would become aligned. I did not guess after this scene that they would have to ultimately prove who was the better one in a fight to the death, that they would have a showdown was something that this helped disguise. But bringing Flag back in was actually a good thing. I felt like his energy matched this team, although we're... Either of you surprised to see Alice Braga from New Mutants here? Oh, is that what she is to you, New Mutants? I believe she was uh, (laughs) I Am Legend, the scientist girlfriend. Yes, she was in that too, but we most recently saw her, probably filmed, oh, actually probably filmed seven years ago. Yeah, Yeah, that that is a film I have forgotten about. I don't think about New Mutants. And no, I don't remember anything about it other than a giant bear (laughs) and it being awful. Here's another fake out, because if we saw a a male in this role, we might assume that the coup was going to be just another changing of the guards and it would make no difference. But because she's this sexy female and Flag has a crush on her, we kind of want to see these rebels take the presidency. What normally might seem like a conflict where we don't care, now we want to see her installed in the seat. All of these bad men are in office, and we know that she's different. But yeah, I was fine with Flag joining the team, but once we get to Margot Robbie and Harley Quinn getting her solo subplot here, probably the closest we'll ever have to a solo Harley Quinn movie, The energy of the film changes. It's not bad, but I was worried the very first time because I liked what was going on so much. I didn't want to see it go away, and I was scared what would come wouldn't be as good. But I do feel like here, James Gunn is relying on old tropes again. I feel like this kind of mismatched romance we've seen happen several times with Star-Lord, with the Golden Woman, or with the... Ascavarian, and but I, I was surprised that it actually was a romance and not like this guy wanted to kill her. He really did want to marry her, and they have a quite a sexual tryst. 
Yeah, th- this is where I'm talking about you could trim some of this stuff with Harley being wooed by the new Presidente. But I do feel like this is an important scene. Like, I remember, and I think I commented on it. You listen to the podcast, Stuart, you could tell me. But, you know, everyone with Jared Leto Joker and Harley Quinn, they're like, oh, relationship goals. I'm like, no, that that's an awful dysfunctional relationship. That should not be your relationship goals. And I feel like Harley addresses all that, like this president's gonna woo her and she's falling for him but ultimately he's toxic just like the joker like i I feel like this is addressing some of those criticisms of the harley joker relationship yeah it's allowing her to continue on a journey like if we thought that her breaking up with joker was just a plot for one movie and they'd forget all about that no she is continually trying to find a mate and getting hooked up with yeah guys that either don't live like javelin or, yeah, guys that are, like, in every way what exactly what she wants, except then they, like... Except he kills kids. <laughs> lead her romantically out onto the patio and say, look at Jodenheim. That's where we're going to send all of our enemies, women, children, anyone that speaks out against you. We'll just put them to death in this infamous tower. And she decides that props to her. I think it's her most heroic moment in this movie. It was a shock to me. Is that she says, I know red flags when I see them. Killing children is one of them. And so I cannot be your wife. Even though this would be a great fantasy, I'm going to take the gun from the gun case we just destroyed in our raucous sex scene and just blow you away. To be fair, she didn't think it had bullets. Yeah, I do like that one line of like, who would have thought this was loaded? Like saying what the audience would say is, do you keep loaded guns in your gun case? But it is reminding us that Jotunheim is the goal and it's giving Harley... Her emancipation. I feel, I think this is greater emancipation than she got in an entire Birds of Prey movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And more about Jodenheim. We've learned a little bit more about Project Starfish as well. We saw Luna, before he was shot, go there with this mayor, this Suarez guy. And they've been investigating these NASA film strips. They have these American astronauts that were doing something with a starfish they found floating around their space station. And now it lives in the bowels of this tower. It's the Project of Thinker, a supervillain that has a giant cranium that has electrodes protruding from his head. He's super smart, super dangerous, and he's the mastermind behind what these Suicide Squad members are trying to destroy. And again, if you don't know your American history, it's interesting that maybe you're thinking, oh, this is propaganda from this new president, uh, this new coup, military coup that's taken over. But they do imply that that old regime that people supposedly loved, they were getting rid of their enemies, too, with Project Starfish. Yeah, I thought that that was very satisfying that like first you hear, oh, a family was executed and overthrown and these people took over. Well, boo on them. But then you find out that that family was also committing. Again, the idea of democracy in South America is kind of a running joke because it's a really it's a history of oppression. And every time they're, quote unquote, liberated, it just falls under new bad management. It's kind of a sad, darkly funny story. And so Project Starfish, again, when we think about the way that the Nazis in in World War II fled here, Mingala and what have you, to know that there was these secret experiments going on and that people were used in a diabolical way, now we find out that there's a space creature that spits out starfish alien style, face-huggering your face. Though that Starro was created before those alien films. And he did the same thing in the comic from the 60s. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, again, I'm not I'm not here to accuse anyone of saying you're a thief. 
There's someone out there thinking it, just setting the record straight. A side note about that. We live in an age where there are no new ideas and everything is a copy of everything. Nobody gets to say, I came up with a new thing. Doesn't happen anymore. This concept is as old as anything and Alien took it from a 1950s movie. So does that diminish in any way that we have a giant starfish spitting out face huggers? No, I think James Gunn is having a joke on Alien and I think it's still kind of creepy. Like it still has sort of the body horror ickiness of Alien, but so much better than the Grapeheads, right? When we think about the first movie, this is such a more satisfying metahuman problem. Oh, yes. I, I feel like in some way James Gunn is repeating that first film. Like, we're going to see a bunch of people not in control of their bodies, but instead of those silly grape heads, like, I like his design here. Like, I feel like this is why you bring Gunn in, to make something cute and silly, but also super dangerous. And I, I feel like Starro, like, rides that line perfectly. Yes. Gunn said that when he was a kid, Starro gave him nightmares because of the star-on-the-face mind control thing. It really freaked him out. And as somebody who was scared by that awful robot in Superman 3, I can completely <laughs> go with why he would be freaked out by that. I'll completely accept that this crazy comic starfish would freak him out with its control over you and making you kill people by putting a starfish on your face. And that's why he brought this one in as the villain. And I agree. I think while I was thinking alien, because when that starfish hits your face, you're no longer alive. It surprisingly worked for being a giant starfish. Yeah, and, and even the alien mythos itself in Prometheus, they went with the idea of the, the Lovecraftian starfish. Oh, that's right. There's a starfish at the end of that one, huh? There is. They took it in that direction. All of this comes, if you want to talk about sources, all of this is Lovecraftian in design. And I think that's good because Lovecraft is both kind of silly and, and scary and, and ominous. It, it works in all the ways that it should. This villain is much more satisfying than a witch trying to conjure up great people <laughs> in the middle of a, you know, ghetto. Like that was three different ideas that did not gel here that were in South South America covering up American experimentation that led to this Lovecraftian monster. Much, much better setup. I'm really enjoying this setup. Now, because of the jumping around here, I got a little confused when the Suicide Squad kidnapped a bus and its driver, Milton. Yeah, this feels like there's too many versions of the same idea in this movie. James Gunn always wants to single out the background character and say, it's your story, right? That's the whole point of Suicide Squad is these are the D-team, the villains, the back players, the polka dot men that never get their own feature. I'm going to love you. Milton is just another version of that. He is a functional character that gets them a van and rather than just let that go by, James Gunn wants to say, what if we tried to make his arc tragic in some way or poetic that here was this little character that suddenly mattered a lot to the team? It's just too much of the same beat. I really feel like we don't need Milton, but here he is. Yeah, I kind of feel like Harley Quinn later on. Who's Milton? We just spent three hours with him. Yeah, I don't know. Who, who is he? I, that's part of the reason I had to watch it a second time because I'm like... 
Is Gunn having a laugh? Did he say Milton was there from the moment they washed up on the beach? Was Milton there from the moment they washed up on the beach? No, we see him. He is a friend of this female rebel leader who has agreed to go to a checkpoint without knowing what happens next. They ask him for papers. They want to get inside and see what he's carrying. He's all flustered. And then fortunately for him, the B team comes out of the shadows and his windshield is spattered with blood. All set to Yacht Rock, by the way, Kansas. He'll be just sort of there in the background. Again, the point is, is that nobody is small in this universe. You always count, no matter how minuscule your powers, no matter how outside you're treated, neglected, James Gunn thinks you're terrific and will take a moment to eulogize you or idolize you. I, I do feel like you get a sense of who is small. Though. Like Peacemaker, I get it. John Cena, he's a big actor. Maybe because he ends up being a villain. But we don't really know what his story is. We got a little bit with Bloodsport and his daughter. I feel like this middle part, we're going to get backstories. Like Ratcatcher 2, especially. We're going to see a lot of stuff going on where she came from. And and even Polka Dot Man. We're, we're going to find out what his whole hang-up is here. Yeah, some of these stories are meant to bring us closer. I do feel like Ratcatcher and Dubois, who's... Blood sport. They will connect. They have a relationship. I don't even think it's romantic. No, it's father-daughter. Yeah, yeah. He's a phobic of rats, and of course, Sebastian is taken to him, and Sebastian thinks he's a good person when he himself... You know, he's got a daughter that doesn't think he's a good person and has all of this guilt. I mean, I saw how he interacted with that daughter. He's a pretty bad dad. <laughs> Didn't even know her age. Yeah, so here's a surrogate daughter who, again, her story is that her father taught her her powers, but also had a drug habit and OD'd on the streets of Paris, and now she needs a father figure, maybe, or at least is gravitating towards Dubois in these scenes. All of this is good, but it does feel like the movie is slowing down so that they can give them all this. It's, it's something that would have been better off inserted throughout the movie instead of this middle section that feels like... I was checking my watch. It's an hour into the movie, and I I wanted it to be further. It does slow it down. I'm sorry, but Ratcatcher 2's tale of how she and Taika Waititi were kept from freezing in the night by being covered with rats that kept them warm didn't move me. I like the actress here. Oh, people were laughing. That was, that was a joke. It's meant to be poignant, and then it's supposed to be uproarious. The idea that they had rat blankets is a joke, Arnie. You're, everyone in the theater was laughing. Okay, I wasn't sure, you know, it, it, because I didn't see it with an audience, which I regret. I thought that they were really going for emotion with that scene. If they weren't going for emotion, cut it, because it's not funny either. It, I thought they were really trying to make us care for these characters. And when Polka Dot Man's talking about his mother... It's both. That's James Gunn, is that he thinks that he can use crude humor and silliness to underline and, and make you fall in love with characters that he actually does. He's, you know, like a lot of sensitive people, he doesn't want to show you that it, they mean a lot to him. He's more comfortable disposing of them and schlacking them in blood and what have you. But secretly, yes, he loves these characters and wants you to love them as well. But some work and some don't. I, I'm not feeling King Shark's plight of I have no friends. Like They keep trying to sell the idea that he can't make friends because he keeps trying to eat people Nothing about King Shark is working. If there was a character I could cut, uh, it probably would be him. That I understand. I disagree about cutting him because he is great comic relief for this, but 
you're not going to get me to feel the plight of him. I think there's some great CGI there, though. Great CGI. It, not that it looks real. Not that I think a shark is walking around, but the texture on the skin, the facial expressions, the minor movements of the nostrils. I think the animators did a great job. I think Stallone did a great job. It's just how do you make me care about a dumb shark? I mean, it's less distracting than Killer Croc, and I think that was kind of practical. Like, But yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's better than Killer Croc. Yes, I, absolutely. All Everything here is an improvement on 2016 Suicide Squad. I, I think we're supposed to get emotional when he's dancing at the aquarium with those fishes. Or maybe that's just a joke. I, I wasn't getting water in my eyes. I wasn't getting water in my eyes, but I, I did think it was emotional. Or crying, but... He's the only one that has to stay behind. He wants a disguise and give me a fake mustache and I can blend in at this gentleman's club. I was thinking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when they just throw in trench coats and people would think they're people. Yeah, you would think that they might even try it, but they're like, no, you have to wait in the van. And there's just a moment where we cut back to him and he's crying because he's alone. I think that's supposed to be funny tender. That's what I'll keep calling this emotion. It's like, yes, it's kind of funny and absurd, but I do think Gunn wants you to care. I think you he actually does want you to go, aww. And the calculus is not entirely correct. I don't love King Shark, but, you know, I think the biggest problem is I want this thing to be moving on further than it is. It's distressing to me that there's another hour of this movie because I feel already kind of exhausted. I agree. Comedies, and this is what I would classify as largely a comedy, are best when they're 90 minutes. Yeah, it's stuff like, okay, they... They got everyone except Harley. They haven't saved her yet, but they're going to go get the thinker. And we're just going to get a whole dance sequence in this club. Like, again, this is where I'm like, okay, just cut all this stuff. I know you like music, James, but just cut it all. I don't need to see Polka Dot Man dancing with 50 of his moms. It feels very weird. I thought he was supposed to hate his mom, but it feels very Freudian when he's grinding against his mom. No, no, I liked that moment. I did because it does show how obsessed he is with his mother both in good and bad ways. And yes, I think you can go very Oedipal with that. You hate your mother. You love your mother. Your mother was experimenting on you and gave you these weird superpowers, but it's because your mother wanted you to be exceptional. I like that. Here's where we get the bonding moments, where the squad finally coheres as a bunch of friends, which is why it is sad King Shark isn't there because he's an equal member of the team. Everybody else is inside having drinks, having a laugh. Even Peacemaker and Bloodsport, who have been rivals this whole time, right, are now coming together. I think you need this moment for the team so that when they unravel, it feels worse. I'm okay with that. That was the twist that I never saw coming was I believed they were telling me this was Hobbs and Shaw and that these two tough guys that were identical and maybe one wasn't needed would end up relying on one another. But you are correct. If you are paying attention closely, John Cena's character is not sharing backstory. He is not really blending with the other people. He's he's watching what's going on and he's encouraging them to drink, but he himself is not being vulnerable and disclosing. And if you notice that, you may suspect that he is a secret villain. But I didn't get it. I didn't see that coming. It's also his backstories in going to be covered in a miniseries on HBO Max. Right. That even more reason why he has to be a good guy, right? Like I would never think that they'd make a miniseries about the betrayer of the Suicide Squads. 
I mean, in the comic, he does eventually become good and work for Checkmate, which is like a spy organization with superheroes. So they might end up going that direction on the TV show. Yeah. But what we get here is, it's kind of what you guys were saying earlier. We get, things are drawn out. They're complicated because it, it takes a while, but there's nothing really complicated about what they do. Like, all right, so the military knows Americans are here. They're rounding up everyone in the gentleman's club. We have Bloodsport has found the thinker. He's easy to spot. He's the only one with the cranium three size bigger than everyone else. Antenna sticking out of his head. <laughs> I love that he goes to a brothel, though, as his yes. off hours time. That was an understated joke was that like, yes, he's so obsessed with Operation Starfish, but he still likes to party. You know, he still wants to get down with the ladies or the rats. <laughs> yes. So, you know, you do think like, OK, this is going to be really complicated getting him into Jodenheim. He's even saying that you'll never get in. It's so impossible. How do you think you'll do this? I feel like it takes a while, but there's nothing very hard about what they do. Basically, the men give themselves up and get caught and then cause a car accident. Yeah, it takes a while because they got to go rescue Harley first. Yeah, but even before that, they do some shenanigans on the road. And again, the length of time that is devoted to side quests is part of the charm of this movie and part of the, why it is difficult to sit down and watch it in one sitting. I agree in both cases. I mean, if you didn't have the side quest, this movie's too simple. Uh, but with the side quest, this movie feels aimless. Mm, yeah. Well, here's it's all relying then on its charm, which is there. It's plentiful, but maybe not enough to sustain full interest at this two hour plus length. But the only reason to have Peacemaker and Bloodsport and Flag get captured is so that they can get the news Harley is alive. And now we're going to get a scene straight out of Guardians of the Galaxy 2. If you remember that movie, when Yondu gets out of captivity and goes on the murder spree, the slow motion murder spree set to music with his little arrow, and we get an entire music video of Yondu killing people in very stylized ways. Here we're going to have that exact same thing with Harley Quinn and the non-David Lee Roth version of I Ain't Got Nobody, which I've <laughs> never heard before. Louis Prima, come on. He had the original. David Lee Roth is the poser. It's just a complete replay of that movie. I'm like, Gun, I saw that movie, you know? And this is the second time we're seeing Harley do this too, because she broke out of captivity and Birds of Prey like this. Yes, me too. Yeah, I, I was thinking more of that scene, but he, here's the thing. I'm enjoying it. Like, this is where I kind of perk up. I'm like, oh, better, whether it's Margot Robbie or her stunt person, and sometimes those shoulders get real broad, so there's a stunt person there. But, like, real, actual, physical stunts, better than anything in Snake Eyes. Heck, give her ScarJo's $50 million that she's suing for, Because but Margot Robbie got probably got 50 million for this but like she's actually doing stuff on like that black widow film like i'm engaged in this stuff and yeah it helps that it's a little bit more r-rated she's like sawing a dude's head off with some cloth and all that i don't know like th this is where i get back into because i'm like you could just have harley show up and go oh you guys wanted to rescue me oh well i got out and move on but i like this little flashback here this if you're gonna make this an r-rated action film like I, I feel like it's paying off now i like it in isolation but as part of an overly long movie and her Disneyfied cartoon birds that show up to cheer her on. 
I love that. That's part of her trauma is like she can't accept all the violence that she participates in. So it, it's like Birds of Prey where it all turns into paint and all that. Yeah. If you remember, she wants a normal life. Her fantasy is like doing the wash and raising a baby and having Joker go off to a nine to five job. Like she wants things to be 1950s suburbia. And the tragedy of her life is that it's this distorted acid taking version of that you know like it's it's outlandish but yes is it new that's the problem we've seen it all before we saw an entire movie of it last year do we need one more musical number depends on how much tolerance you have for margot robbie in this character like do you still love it arnie do you still love her in this part no she's fine but they took something away from her after suicide squad What do you think it was? She was rebellious and mischievous there. Remember, she was endlessly working against the squad with Mr. J in secret, who came along and started shooting everybody up because she was just there for her Joker. And without that aspect of evilness, by not having her at all a bad guy, she's not fun anymore. She's too goody-goody when trying to find a man you know she just never feels evil i don't think this harley would just walk past a window smash it in the middle of a mission and take something she liked out of the window and say we're bad guys remember oh come on this is a character that's instead of swiping left shoots you like i i feel like there's still edge in her i like that we don't get an overdose of her. I, I feel like this is the right amount of her. I was kind of dreading having to listen to that accent and everything again, but no, it, it's tamped down. And actually one of my favorite moments later on is with Harley. But yeah, this is a more digestible version of her for me. We would all like this more if we hadn't had that Birds of Prey movie. I feel like if we hadn't seen her in five years, it would be a breath of fresh air every time she came on screen. But because we had that Birds of Prey and it was just so much of this that this just feels like outtakes. This feels very familiar. And I don't know, maybe she is too goody. I don't know if it's too goody, but I feel like it's hard to know, even for her, what her mission is. What what does she want to accomplish if not be with Joker? I guess now she's in love with Flag because she's so touched that this crew came up with an elaborate scheme. They're like, you know, everyone's got walkies and you know, climbing up the wall and about to shoot the cleaning lady. And she's like, I'll go back in there and let you rescue me. Like, if that's what you really want. Yeah, Flag seems really into her as well in this film. I I was wondering where they're going to go with that. Yeah. Keep in mind, they've probably been working together for five years. I mean, they did ask how she got back into prison because she had been emancipated. But they drop a line saying why she's back there. But she was so comfortable with Captain Boomerang and Flag and things that I figured they've been on a lot of missions together since that first movie. But it was this rescue. I think she attributes to him. You know, she I don't think she was in love with him in earlier scenes, but realizing that he took the time out of their real mission to come save her. And he was the one that insisted on it. That that makes her realize, oh, somebody cares for me. Maybe this will be the relationship. I'll be honest with you. I had a secret feeling throughout the entire movie that if she always is falling in love with the wrong guy and King Shark is so, so in need of a friend, I thought for sure those two were going to hook up at the end. Oh, I thought no. for sure they would end up like getting married, like going down the aisle, Shark and Bride. I was Their baby was going to be the new Aquaman villain? 
I, yes, I was sure of that. So this was a real surprise that it was going to be Flag. But of course, that's to set up the idea that Flag is not going to make it through the end of this movie. Unfortunately, also with Harley, I feel like her best jokes were in the trailer. Like, I think it is really funny when they're replaying a scene from the first movie. They're talking to Thinker right before the mission into Jotunheim. We're still an hour away from the end of the damn movie. I know. But they're about to break into Jotunheim, and they're like, if you double-cross us, you die. And she's like, if you have vanity license plates, you die. That, that was funny. Hey, you know what? If you cough on someone without covering your mouth, you should die, because you're probably going to kill them in this day and age. <laughs> I like also if you mismatch blacks, you die, because it is really hard to match blacks. <laughs> uh, again, all of this stuff, because it's less of her, I feel like is more effective, but... Yeah, could they have made this entire squad without Harley? It's weird she's top billed. I don't feel she is the star of this movie. And it's weird that they're selling it, at least in the marketing, that she is the star. Maybe that will be a disappointment for some. But if there is a star of this, who would you say it is? Idris, right? Yeah. I would think, yeah, Bloodsport's the star of this film. Yeah. Yeah, but you, Margot Robbie in the DC Universe is the bigger name. People did love Harley Quinn enough to give her basically her own movie out of that 2016 movie that nobody appears to have that much love for. Idris, though, is our main character here. He's He does feel like the leader of the team. His arc is to become a leader. He kind of lets Flag take that role while Flag's around, but his arc is to go from I'm no leader, I'm no father, to a good father and a good leader. I, I think Idris should be top billed were it not for the fact that Harley Quinn is the biggest character in DC these days, I think. Mm, fair enough. And they've done something, I heard dialogue, I figured you guys could fill me in. Something has happened with the communications so that Waller can, she can still blow up their heads, but she doesn't know what they're doing or saying. She can't track them. Yeah, they 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 have jammers so they can't communicate out. Okay. And that's so they could have all these fights between Peacemaker and Bloodsport without her just blowing off Bloodsport's head because she doesn't know what's going on. Right. She's actually, she'll end up taking a nap and most of the crew like back there doesn't have any idea about how this break-in is going to go. And it largely goes successful. Like, again, it takes a while for them to rig up the place with explosives and get through the door and all of that. But that's because it's in slow motion. And they got to fight in the rain and all of that. I mean, we're going to see King Shark dance with the fishes, literally. And you you say fight in the rain. Don't you mean Angel Splooge? Not a great line. Yeah. yeah. Again, if you're loving that kind of blue humor, it's... Watch it, James. That's going to get you canceled if you tweet that. Well, I, it's also going to just bore me because I feel like that shows that you don't have confidence to, to do anything else. Like when you get nervous, it's like a nervous tick. When you feel like it's gotten too quiet and you want to hear a laugh, you're just going to say smooge or dick or pussy or whatever. That was my criticism for the original Guardians. And I, I still stand by that after watching it, rewatching it a few times was every time you had like a great little character moment, we had a hurry and cut to a joke. It just kind of backtrack on any emotions you might have felt like I guess that is a thing Gunn does like he's maybe not confident in these emotional moments because you don't need him a joke every time to downplay it. Right. I feel like the reason why I, and Jacob, I think you're in this team too, we're in a minority, but the reason why we like Guardians 2 more than Guardians 1 was he did take that risk 
of doing the Yandu storyline. Yeah. And giving us something that wasn't about jokes. It was about sentiment. It was about heart. Which we are not sentimental people, but if you could pull it off in a subversive way, I'm down for it. Yeah. We are now in the part of the climax where it's time to pay out all these backstories and give us that heart. This team needs to be more than, you know, butt-cracking jokes. And we're learning, yeah, the dirty secret. Flag has made it down to the basement, seen Starro and what has become of all of these people, and learned that, if not Amanda directly, America supports and has engaged in this kind of diabolical mad scientist behavior for 30 years. I do feel like Flag should have known about the And he's been molesting the patients or the subjects. I mean, they mentioned that too. This this thinker is a sexual deviant. Oh, I didn't get that. Yeah, he said he he's done whatever he wants with them. When the Starro people start talking, they're like, You tortured us. You forced yourself on us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, you're right. That can mean exactly that. Quite literally. Yeah. I that's how I took it. But I did feel it was weird that Flag wasn't up on all of this. Like I, I felt like he's high enough right. with Task Force X. He should know America engages in black ops and, and crooked stuff like this. He should know. It's a weird choice that he's the innocent that feels like, I can't believe this is my America. Like I guess there was no one else to play that role. They're all villains. They're all criminals. There is no innocent on this team. He's this, the closest to it. He's just a soldier. But his naivete is a little hard to fathom here. And the fact that he's so quick to turn and be like, I'm going to take this disk drive full of this information I'm supposed to wipe. uh, It's what gets him killed because Peacemaker is going to ensure that it does get destroyed. And also, maybe this could go to Ratcatcher too. She'd be naive enough, but you don't want to kill her. Yeah. What is her crime? Like that's, yeah, she definitely doesn't fit into this maximum security prison image. She would use rats to like steal jewelry and stuff so they could survive on the streets okay the worst of the worst again we were supposed to think of this bell rev prison as being like that con air place you know what i mean like the very worst people i mean i feel like rat catcher 2 fits in with con air like those are the same film really there's something very very innocent in nickelodeon show about her but you're right she does uh have an innocent quality and she will get the disc drive after Flag gets stabbed, she sees the battle go down. We have a big fight throwdown between Peacemaker, Flag. For a while, it looks like Flag has the upper hand, gets the big guy down. You think he's going to choke him out. And then he gets stabbed with a shard in the heart. They even extreme close-up cut to the heart being stabbed. We, yes. <laughs> this is no mistake. This guy is not coming back in a sequel. Flag is dead. I was a little bit shocked by that. I, I was shocked that you kept bringing these people back to kill them. But it did make me think of G.I. Joe Retaliation, where they did the exact same thing with <laughs> basically Channing Tatum and the rest of the cast of that first movie. Just bring them back to kill them and move on. I feel like they're getting rid of everything about 2016, except Harley. You know, that the, the idea is that, like, he's the last remnants of that old team, other than Harley, who's her own thing. And Waller. You can't get rid of Waller and still have a suicide squad. <laughs> yeah, Waller is the villain. Again, that gets back to the idea that she's truly the bad guy in, in any scenario they're going into. Sure, they might fight some grapes or an enchantress or a starfish, but ultimately, I do feel like Waller, the oppression that America has dirty secrets and is going to make dirty people cover them up so that they can continue to look heroic, is 
again, that what this series should be about and why Waller is... I, I don't see her as a team player. And again, she will eventually try to turn on this team and blow them all up when they don't follow her to the letter. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. I'll give Gunn this with the visual style. You can get really bored seeing people punch each other on screen. I like that like half of the Peacemaker flag fight was filmed in the reflection of Peacemaker's helmet. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you got a helmet like that, you, you got to show it. Yeah. And, you know, he sees it as a symbol of freedom. They use that helmet almost as a way of signaling early that this guy is a douche, that we shouldn't <laughs> like Peacemaker. Peacemaker is taking out Flag. He's about to take out Ratcatcher 2. This is her moment, right? She's going to die. But no, nope, we're going to go eight minutes earlier. We're going to play with some time and and find out what's happening with the rest of the crew. Milton who? Again, like, do we really... Knowing that we have to eulogize other kind of background characters, the, the fact that Milton has to be this poetic extra, that Polka Dot Man would be the one to notice when nobody else would see him as anything other than a functional character that we never knew his name or thought he died hours ago. In an overlong movie, we didn't need Milton. And did we need King Shark jumping around with colorful fish? Well, he finally has friends. And again, if you cared about that arc, he had finally found sea creatures. You know, when the glass was going to break because the bombs are going off, we we think that this could be a, a joyous reunion. But of course, it's not. I was just wondering why they had an aquarium in Jotunheim. I, I get it that there's a big starfish, but it doesn't seem like it's in that tank. <laughs> like, yeah. Maybe they got to grow food for it. Yeah, I who could say, but or maybe it's a different kind of experiment about creating super piranhas. Yeah, because these fish are not like these are not real fish, right? No, no, no. This is about some, you know, again, everything here is probably a thought that we can weaponize and use against our enemy countries. That certainly is how the new Presidente is looking at it. And so, yeah, I can only imagine that this aquarium is filled with potential sea world problems right like they're gonna <laughs> unleash them onto the florida coast or something like that i mean there is a batman villain orca the whale woman i would have loved to see that cameo <laughs> maybe sequel who knows but yes do i love that king shark has to fight little things that he's always been trying to eat other people and now he's being eaten it's an arc it gives him a story <laughs> he's more than just a background character but i don't love it but no, the, everything goes off, blows up because of polka dot, right? Like they're they're fighting some troops, and he's going to fire his polka dots, and it's going to hit those what C four bombs they were planning around, which blows up this tower. At least one of the fuses it causes. I mean, never quite understood what his polka dots did, but apparently it has something to do with fire, and it's going to make all of the bombs blow up early. It just seems like they're weapons, yeah, yeah, bullets or grenades, yeah, a projectile weapon. That's amusing because they're disco colored and, you know, like they're just not, they just don't look badass. Like you'll, he'll never be cool. And he pukes them up because it's a virus. Yeah. And he'll disappear if he doesn't get rid of them. And when he did that, he was feeling like such a hero. He just killed a couple of guards that killed Milton. And now a couple more come in. He's like, oh, I got this. And he blows up the building. Right. And so this allows Bloodsport to have the rescue moment that he actually will in trying to do some gymnastics and escape the falling tower, land right there at the moment that Peacemaker is about to ice rat catcher. It was funny when, like, he kept going down. It reminded me of, like, a Mario level where you he fell on the cement platform to the next one and then it broke and went to the next one and it broke and went to the next one. And finally, he's facing off with 
He just sees Peace of Acres about to kill Ratcatcher, and that's all he needs to know. And there was some dialogue earlier when we saw them storming the, you know, rebel fort and the way that they battled. I don't think it was clear that Peacemaker had won that, but there was the feeling that bigger is better because Peacemaker had bigger bullets. That meant that he was a a bigger badass. And here, because he has bigger bullets, they could actually be pierced by the smaller bullets that that we we see in slow motion that Bloodsport's little bullet just destroys Peacemaker's bullet. And then presumably, although the end credit stinger will say something else, we would think that Peacemaker is dead. Yeah, it goes back to when they first met in prison. Bloodsport's like, I hit dead center. And Peacemaker's like, well, I hit even more center. Well, how can you hit more center? Smaller bullets. Well, it turns out Bloodsport had the smaller bullets. So, oh, okay. That was the callback there. I see. Okay, so Peacemaker actually was saying he had the smaller bullets and it was more center. Okay, whatever. I mean, I don't need to overly dissect what's a throwaway joke. <laughs> I feel like I'm overanalyzing here. The point is that these two turned rivals. It was a showdown. And in the end, the person that we liked took out the person that, I don't know, maybe people had some residual love for John Cena. Maybe they thought it was funny here. But he had been seeming more and more menacing. And certainly the fact that he wanted to protect Amanda Waller's dirty secrets made him a villain in my mind. I'm glad he's dead. Agreed. Plus, we're down a couple members of the squad. It's time to get on with it, finally. And with Peacemaker dead, we need another villain. Out comes Starro. Yeah, I mean, I I knew Starro was coming because I saw the trailer. The weird thing was, again, because I was thinking of more modern movie structure, I'm like, oh yeah, Starro's going to be like the halfway villain. And then there's going to be something bigger. No, this is the main villain here. I must not have seen many trailers because I had no idea about any starfish other than the joke that Cena thought it was butthole. But I did not know... You did not expect a giant starfish at the end? Well, once they introduced the idea of the NASA footage and we saw them face hugger a bunch of people, I knew this was a knew this was a problem. But it's also a joke on how all these comic book movies end. We've always laughed about how the big monster has to be it's not a climax until your villain turns supersized and is storming like a kaiju down a city street. And this might seem like a joke to you, Stuart, but look, Starro's kind of a joke to me too. But I've read the comics. I know this is the Justice League, the first villain they ever fought was Starro the Conqueror. Like, th- there is some, I guess, legacy feels for this character because he has a history. All right. Go you. If that's living <laughs> in that world that long, you finally get to see them. For all you Starro fans, yeah. <laughs> doing a back catalog villain. Yeah. Real deep. Deep cut on that one. Again, I think the point is that it's the last thing you would think would be threatening, kind of like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. And now here it is storming down the streets and all these people are dead the reason why we can celebrate the suicide squad killing all these people with starfish on their faces is because once it lands on you you're already a corpse you're essentially a zombie and it started with the thinker it got its revenge for being experimented on for 30 years by ripping him apart and throwing him so hard he splats like a bug on a windshield again more james gunn overgore dare i say like he just (laughs) Extra splatter for splatter's sake? I don't know. It's R-rated. Go for it. Like Again, I don't want a realistic R-rated superhero movie. Like, yeah, make it a cartoon, but extra gore. Trauma gore. I mean, but at the same time, it's all about timing, right? If, if they this movie had come out pre-Guardians, we would have been blown away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
the fact that we're now what almost 10 years beyond guardians it's yeah this is kind of passe frankly it's deadpool and dc never would have made it before guardians somebody had marvel took the risk and paved the way right yeah i you know yes it seems like you know you could argue fox too with deadpool they were the first r-rated comic book comedy that was blade sir but i know what you're saying yeah right and this is how Waller, I guess, gets back into the fray because Starro's going to knock out all those communication blockers. So Waller's telling him, hey, you did your mission. You destroyed the data. Just get out of there. But I am shocked. The biggest surprise to me is that not that Peacemaker shows up at the end, but that her lackeys show up at the end. Because I figure you knock out Amanda the Wall Waller, you don't get fired. You get dead. Yeah. Flo Crawley is this woman's name. I don't know if that is going to turn into a superhero later, if that's a setup for something. But Flo Crawley at least wins like... The office pool, like she, everyone's happy to see her take out the boss and they can actually assist this suicide squad in saving this island rather than just say, oh, good, we're not responsible for what happens next. America's involvement has been erased and let's leave. Yeah, this is the scene I really love Viola Davis for is when she is screaming at them to not go back and not try to stop Starro. She is giving a powerful performance there. That could have fallen flat. That much shouting could be almost a self-parody. No, she makes me believe she's going to kill all these fuckers. Yeah, this is the first time that Amanda Waller has been as cool as you've told me she is, Jacob, in those comic books. Yeah, I know. I agree. Like, she finally gets her moment. But all of these moments don't land. I do feel like it's ultimately, you could say Harley has the kill shot with the javelin. You could make the case that Polka Dot Man brings the tears. But I feel like it's Ratcatcher's movie. Yeah, and I just want to call out one, of, at least in the comics, one of Polka Dot's dots was a portal that he could transport the truth. So I wouldn't be surprised if he shows up alive at some point. Like he didn't really get smashed. We didn't see a body when he gets smashed. We see a piece of cloth. That's it. Yeah, it, it is possible, I suppose. But you know, he his mom tried to make him a superhero. We never quite know what made him a supervillain. But here. I love how Bloodsport gets everyone to attack. It's like, King Shark, the alien is nom-noms. It, it felt like a reverse of Hulk not being able to fight Surtur in Thor Ragnarok, where he's like, oh, big monster. But here, it is nom-noms. And then telling Polka Dot, it's your mother. And seeing that woman rampage and roar like Stay Puft, and he's just cutting her off at the ankle it, and he gets that moment i'm a superhero and of course <laughs> dead i'm a motherfucking superhero which again yes. the motherfucking part <laughs> little freudian in that again is this a triumph when i think about that yondo scene jacob i know you agree with me that that oh no this this is not the greatest death in the dc universe like yondo's is in marvel no that hurts i actually felt like i won't say i cried but i felt a little a constriction of the throat in that moment. And here, I don't think I would have even noticed if you hadn't told me that this was an important scene, at least to James Gunn, Arnie, I wouldn't have noticed Polka Dot Man. He's as important as Milton. But it is Ratcatcher 2, who is the heart of this team and comes in to save the day by bringing out the true residents of this island, the rats. My problem with this is she's overpowered. This entire movie didn't need a suicide squad. I mean, she's as powerful as, as the rats around her. Yeah, and there's a lot of rats in this island. She brought them out earlier as, against King Shark, setting up Chekhov's rats. 
but the rats could have gotten the thinker. The rats could have on their own gotten into Jotunheim and done all of this stuff. They didn't need all these other people when this woman can bring millions of rats. But she's a millennial. She needs a leader to tell her what to do. Right. You know how millennials, <laughs> they, they work in teams. You know, they you, you could say they defer to others or you could say that they're collaborative, depending on how you want that to go. But yes, she can take a nap while somebody else saves the day is kind of perfect. The moment that I love, and I call it a Harley Quinn moment, even though it's not really, you could have any character jump into Starro's eyeball, but, you know, there is the joke. She's got that javelin. She finally knows the purpose for it that she's been searching for. You think she's going to stab this thing in the eye, and she falls right through it, and, and this is where I really do appreciate James Gunn, because I'm like, this is horrible and twisted and bizarre, and I love I'm seeing this in a comic book movie. As the rats also dive into the eye, start chewing on the optic nerve, chew their way into the central nervous system, and like Harley Quinn's just smiling. It's got the music going. It's very dreamlike. I'm like, this. I, I do love this moment here a lot. It didn't get me. I know what he was going for with that. You're never going to see a moment like this in any other non-James Gunn superhero film, I feel. I was just grossed by how quickly the cornea gave way and she was able to pop through it. It really grossed me out. The moment that I felt was the most emotional moment in this movie for me is when Starro is dying. El Generalissimo or whatever, the new Presidente, Suarez has a star on his face and Starro says, I was happy just floating and looking at the stars. And you realize Starro didn't want any of this. Starro was kidnapped. No. He was experimented on. He was tortured. I mean, he was just happy to float around in space until American astronauts was like, we're taking this shit back to Earth. Now, at some point, he did connect with them and overtake their minds. But uh, yeah, I get what they're going after here is that, again... In the James Gunn world, there are no villains. There's just misunderstood misfits who can be pushed into good or bad situations. And I'm not crying for Starro, but I agree he is given some kind of humanizing death here. Yeah, and going back to the humanization, he does Gunn does that again with Ratcatcher with another flashback here to just punctuate the whole scene. This was the moment I realized it was Taika Waititi. Before this, you'd seen the father in like from angles and things, but when he finally is talking about how rats are the noblest creatures because if rats can have a purpose, so can we. It's like, oh, you got Taika. He's he's having a big summer between this movie and Free Guy next week. Yeah, I thought it was a little overstated. Like, did it have to be said out loud? But, I mean, maybe. Maybe you do want to go big. I, I do feel like it's a funny Disney moment in this. Like, look, this isn't a great, like, violent crude like I, this isn't totally subversive because we've seen James Gunn do a lot of this stuff before but I thought it was slightly humorous seeing this very Disney moment in this kind of film at this point yeah I, I agree I don't want to overanalyze anything here it all passes by and it's kind of over the top it's kind of ridiculous and funny stupid and cool at the same time and it's pretty much over really quickly once Starro goes down Bloodsport is blackmailing for all of their freedom. That tape will not go out. He says, even though Flag died for this to go out, it's better to have leverage than to have transparency. Let me try to understand this. That means they're not going back into the Louisiana prison. They will never be put in the cells that this chopper picking them up is going to take them back to their various homes or wherever they want to go. That's how I took it. Yeah. 
Okay, interesting. That if they make a sequel, uh, it won't begin with uh, the the prison. Or they'll have totally different characters. Or Bloodsport will have gotten arrested again. I feel like he's the one you bring back. Right. And Weasel. And Weasel. Yes, please give me more Weasel. The Weasel is the early credit scene, late credit scene. We see the B players plus John Cena who will continue into a TV series, I think. We can't get Viola Davis. So we're going to have these people who supposedly work for Viola Davis and are available. Amelia Harcourt and John Economos. I don't know, again, if, Jacob, that means anything to comic book fans or whether they're just nameless Joes. Yeah, I know, like, Flo Crawley, she was a character in the Suicide Squads that worked, you know, behind the scenes with Amanda Waller. These might be those kind of characters, too. They're not names that stand out to me. Okay, yeah, they're not going to turn into... Some aquatic monster. Well, who knows, right? Who knows what they're going to do in this series? Amelia Harcourt is James Gunn's girlfriend. Like, they've lived together for a decade. I think common law wife at this point. Okay. You mean the na- the actress playing Amelia or the, the... Yeah, the actress playing Amelia, Jennifer Holland. Keeping the wife employed. Apparently, though, this happened... You know, this movie was supposed to come out in 2020. And... There had been talk about a TV spinoff series for this. And in his downtime during COVID, James Gunn, nobody asked him to. He just wrote a season of a Peacemaker TV series. And then HBO Max came to him and said, who do you think could get a spinoff TV series? He's like, I have eight episodes already written. And he directed five of them. And he's hoping for season two. So he's heavily involved with this Peacemaker series. Yes, Then we will discuss it when they do the Suicide Squad sequel in three years. And John Cena, you know what? After seeing him in F9 and playing with Fire and the Daddy's Home films, I think John Cena is perfect for television. I think he has good (laughs) persona, but I just think they've never found a vehicle that really works for him. Come on, what about Blockers? Is there there a Blockers franchise that's going to be spawned from that comedy? I just think TV's his place. I really do. TV is not... I mean, that's most of his work is on TV, wrestling. Yeah, I don't think that's a diss either. You get a lot of great people. Matthew McConaughey did a season of TV. But I think John Cena, as a leading man, will work better on the small screen when people don't have to pay specifically for that. But people didn't really pay for this. I mean, again, HBO Max. Uh, the movie was estimated to come in well over $30 million. They were thinking maybe 40 million, 25 million. Mm. Well, there were people in the IMAX, but I think the people that wanted to see it wanted to see it on the biggest screen possible. But that may be the future of movie screenings, of a a select market of people that want the big experience. The days where you're going to have a $100 million opening may be over. But will you spend 185 million on Suicide Squad 3 if you're going to only bring in 33 worldwide opening weekend? Well, maybe the future is television. I don't know. I don't know how the economics work and how. Yeah, I don't get the accounting for streaming. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what it means to create something and have it streamed and how that's, you know, different than paying a ticket. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Suicide Squad? Jacob. I mean, I got what I wanted in that it's a pretty solid film. It's much better than that original one, which I recommend it as, you know. It's an all right 90s action film, but this is something more. But yeah, I think we've all said it. This would feel much more unique if James Gunn hadn't done Guardians yet. Like this feels very much like what James Gunn is going to do with any superhero that he's given. 
And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a different flavor. Like we get some humor because it's R-rated. We get some gratuitous violence. Like that's that's all stuff I want in my Suicide Squad films conceptually more or less. Like violence and crude humor and make it adult. And you know what? This one, yeah, better plot. More of that Black Ops feel with trying to hide war crimes that the U.S. has committed. Like it feels like that 80s John Ostrander run of Suicide Squad, the original run where it was much more about Reagan and Black Ops. But it also feels like that Gail Simone run as well for me with Secret Six where, hey, these are a bunch of silly D-list villains and let's make some jokes and have some fun with them. Like I feel like it's a pretty good marriage between the two ways you would want to take this team of D-list villains. And so, yeah, the, my complaints, I mean, we talked about it. it. It lags a bit. Like, trim this down, cut out 20, 25 minutes. It, it's much more uh, digestible at that point. This does, maybe because I'm watching on TV, but it, it feels like you guys kind of felt the same thing. Even you, Stuart, watching in theaters, like, yeah, here, here's a commercial break. I could walk away for an hour or a day and then come back and watch the next episode. It doesn't quite gel as like, I must sit down for this two hours and watch all this in, in one piece because it's so gripping. It does feel, again, because it's James Gunn, maybe more like a sitcom. And, and I don't need a two-hour sitcom or two-hour-plus sitcom. So, But I don't have that. Those are minor complaints, ultimately, is the runtime and it has some lag. The humor, again, it's objective. There's a lot of jokes. More worked for me than they did not. I liked, again, that we're having character moments. There's a lot of characters in here, so there's a lot of character moments. But I like that we're looking for some kind of depth with even these silly polka dot man characters. So a lot of things I appreciate. Not a perfect film, but it was a fun film. Like, I I enjoyed sitting through it. I, I liked its perverseness at the end, like with rats just chewing through optic nerves, like, again, maybe a little James Gunn, but it felt unique when you look at all of superhero canon in film. So yeah, this this is definitely a step up from Suicide Squad. The Suicide Squad is the one to watch. Recommend. Stuart. Yeah, this is nothing more or less than an amusing B-movie. It does, doesn't aim that high, and it hits all of its targets. James Gunn has essentially slapped a new skin, a Guardian skin, on a DC property and repackaged uh, his greatest hits. And I think that people that like it will enjoy it. I came in with very low expectations. What was so funny about listening to the old podcast was we were so excited. You had a lot of expectations. We were so all so excited about that first Suicide Squad movie. This one, I came in like actually not wanting to be there. I had a good time. It was painless. Suicide is painless, as the song goes. <laughs> Amusing, disposable. Maybe that sounds like a diss. Maybe it sounds like I should be giving it more. But, I mean, making trash is hard to do. We saw this year. Zack Snyder tried to do this very thing with Army of the Dead. They had one good idea about a zombie white tiger. And otherwise, were scrambling to try and hit these jokes and do these things. Here, Gunn does have some good relationships. I particularly like Ratcatcher and Bloodsport. I do feel like, you know, he tried to slip in some humanity here and now that certainly an improvement on Amanda Waller, not forgetting to make America part of the villainy. I feel like in all ways, it's an improvement on the 2016 movie and a solid, amusing, disposable good time. It doesn't move the needle on the genre. And I think that's what I would ultimately want. My favorite superhero movies are the ones that push the envelope. This one... You know, it feels like it's a part of something that used to be subversive, but isn't anymore. Season 8 
of The Simpsons. You're still laughing, but it doesn't have the shock value that it once did. So that's a recommend. You finally recommend a Harley Quinn movie. Uh, yeah, I get, I didn't, you know what? I don't think of this as a Harley Quinn movie, but you're right. This is the first time of the three that I have said unqualified, go see it. And this is the first time of the three that's getting three green arrows. I agree with what you guys have said. This feels like James Gunn's greatest hits, but it also is James Gunn when he's let loose. It feels like DC stepped back on this one, you know, as compared to the first Suicide Squad where DC kicked Iyer out of the driver's seat, took over control of the car, and drove it into a bit of a wall. Here, they gave James Gunn the keys to the kingdom. Whatever characters you want, you want to film dicks and put it in a DC movie, film dicks. Go ahead. And James Gunn does what I know James Gunn to do. It's the same James Gunn that got in trouble for making those jokes a decade ago. And there's extra splatter, like James Gunn likes. There's a lot of old songs like James Gunn likes. I mean, fuck's sake, he used air supply in Slither, you know, and made that work. And it's got that kind of offbeat humor and yet that heart that James Gunn puts in every film. And so the downside is I feel like it is, like you said, Stuart, it's not pushing anything forward for the genre. It's not pushing anything forward for this director that I used to revere by being able to take a talking tree and a talking raccoon and making them some of my favorite characters in cinematic history. I'm like, James Gunn is God. And I'm like, James Gunn's okay. You know, he's pretty cool. I like his stuff. But is this all he is? Is there nothing more? That's a song too, you know. I know. (laughs) We should be singing that one. Is that all there is? I don't know. Arnie, I'm curious. You you went into this telling us off air. You thought that this was going to be hands down the best DC movie in the entire extended universe. Did it hit that mark? Is it better than Shazam for you? That's the thing is I give both of those four stars on Letterboxd. Photo finish between this and Shazam as the best of the 10 movies in the DC extended universe. 11 if you count the recut Justice League on its own. Okay, so at the top. Shazam is just still more coherent and doesn't feel like it drags the way it does, but this is really close to the best of the DC movies. And its biggest problem is its running time. And like you, Jacob, watching it at home and the first time, you know, like you want to do, it came on Thursday night and I didn't expect that. I was so excited. I'm like, yes, I can watch it with the people in the theater. I thought I'd have to wait until Friday. But I paused it a couple of times because I hadn't expected you to sit down for two hours. And I'm like, were my breaks too long? Did I stretch this out and it felt too long? No, watching it the second time, just sitting there, no distractions, me and the movie, it's too long. And it doesn't go new places. But it's a really good movie that I enjoyed and can give a wholehearted recommend to. I agree with you that it, it's, it ranks right there with Shazam for me. I still think Wonder Woman is the highlight, but I agree. Like the ones that I've liked most have pushed the envelope a little bit more, but the ones that have been solid performers are the ones that are just content on being silly B-movie fun. Suicide Squad and this new one and Shazam know what they are and don't try to be more and are probably good enough to just be a good time. A lot of where DC has gotten into trouble and why they have so middling movies, they have these pretensions for greatness they can't achieve. And so you just wind up with most of their catalog. There's not much difference between Man of Steel and 
Batman v Superman and Justice League and Birds of Prey and Suicide Squad. The only truly like bad ones, I think, are Wonder Woman 1984 and Aquaman. Those are just bad movies. <laughs> My wish is to never see that one again. Oh, but we're getting a sequel. But no, I agree. Like this, I, I put this up probably just because it's more adults and Shazam is so kiddie. I'd probably watch this one before Shazam. But yeah, Wonder Woman's still at the top for me. And, and then this one and Shazam, they're, they're, those are rank very closely to each other. And then all the rest is kind of, even though I've recommended some of that other stuff, it's all kind of mud. It, it just all blurs together. And good things in there, but not good movies overall. That's what I'm seeing a lot of. They need, if, if there's one thing I, I wish for DC, is that they ha- allow their directors to be complete in their vision. Don't try to undercut them. Don't insist on inserting other things. Let them give you the full flavor of whatever they're going after and let it stand on its own. Because when you try to muddy it up and throw other elements in there, you end up with a real unruly stew. Let's just face it, though. I mean, they tried to force the Marvel model on DC and say, we need team films. We need the billion-dollar team films like Marvel had with the Avengers. And now they're kind of just like hands off. Let's just bring in some good people to make good movies that sound good. We're not going to have Ben Affleck in our Batman movie. We're going to bring in that guy from Twilight. And I mean, that guy, Robert Pattinson's great. Probably better than Ben Affleck. Yeah, and he's more than the guy from Twilight. If if he were, I probably would be worried. But Robert Pattinson... I literally just blanked on his name. I know he's done really good stuff. I liked him well enough in Tenet. I just blanked on his name. And that was the thing I went to is like, who's that guy? No, but I do think that is the popular perception of him. But yeah, I think people will be surprised. He will have to overcome that. He will have to prove to people he's not just the sad sack vampire from Twilight. As he plays a guy dressed as a giant bat. One of five DC movies coming out next year. There's five? We're done for this year. No more DC, but five theatrical films, starting with The Batman next March. And then we get what probably is going to be their very worst film. Aquaman 2. There's no saving this concept. No, no. DC League of Super Pets is something coming in May. Oh, that does, that's not real. It's real. Count. It doesn't count, though. It's animated. It. <laughs> you say it doesn't count. We might talk about it, but... It, I'm paying $15 to see it in IMAX. It counts. But that that is not DCEU. But yeah, that's going to be garbage. I agree. All right. Four DC films. We'll, we'll not count it then. Next summer, we get Black Adam, which I know nothing about other than it's The Rock. Sequel to Shazam. Okay. No, no. Shazam 2 is different than Black Adam, isn't it? Okay. But Black Adam is tied into Shazam. It's an earlier version of Shazam. Then at Thanksgiving, we get a Flash solo movie. That's the multiverse. That's the one people are excited for because of Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton, Ben Affleck. And then at Christmas, we get Aquaman 2. Amber Heard, DC will not listen to the Cancelverse. Again, a big lineup for them. How much it will feel like a coherent universe. It will be interesting a year and a half from now to see where we stand on DC and if we have a, a raised or lowered opinion about their extended movie universe. But we are breaking from superheroes for a little bit. I think our next one's Shang-Chi. Yep. About another month until we get more comic books. But we are keeping the ultraviolence. If you liked all the splatter going on in this movie, we're going to be getting to some home invasion classics, starting with what I'd call the granddaddy of them all, 1971 Straw Dogs. Next week, Dustin Hoffman is the nerdy mathematician who realizes how to use a bear trap effectively against people breaking into his home. 
And then that Friday, more classic actors, Gene Hackman in The Conversation, the film that is ostensibly the prequel to Enemy of the State. To be discussed. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel it wrong to push that movie as the sequel to Enemy of State, but it does have Gene Hackman in both movies as a wiretapper. I just believe more people actually remember Enemy of the State than remember the conversation. Well, of course. I agree with that as well. <laughs> well, it depends on what people you're polling. The Conversation is an Academy Award-winning movie, won the top honors at the Cannes Film Festival. Francis Ford Coppola made it right after The Godfather. I'll argue it's just as good. We can see how that goes. This Friday the 13th, for patrons, we're going to get into that conversation. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Until next time, apparently five times next year, justice has been served. We gotta calm down. Let's all just, let's, let's talk about this. I understand where you're coming from. I crossed the line, okay? I crossed the line. I realized that, but I'm ready to change. I am ready to change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's DC Movie Universe Retrospective Series. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Stay down! I wanted it, you'd be dead already. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. Can you imagine how people on this planet would react if they knew there was someone like this out there? You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash now playing. I'm in. You are? Just like that. Yeah, I, I need friends. And in the nowplayingpodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other comic book films, such as Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, The Avengers, X-Men, The Punisher, and Fantastic Four. I can't wait to show you my toys. You can also listen to our reviews of other movie series, including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. The world's too big, Mom. Then make it small. Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our In Focus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. This may be the only thing I do with the matters. I know you're trying to find out where I hang my tape. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. We need you, and maybe you need us. Support from listeners like you. Help keep Now Playing operating. It'd be a huge burden for anyone to bear. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. No money, no honey. And you can join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. You got your money's worth. Now Playing Podcast is produced and edited by Arnie Carvalho. Everything in your psychological profile tells me you have what it takes to be a leader. Associate produced by Jason Latham. It is the burden of this responsibility that will define you and who you choose to be. Now playing credit narration by Brock. Sorry, the voices. I'm kidding. That's not what they really said. Now playing is not affiliated with DC Comics or Warner Brothers Pictures. 
DC Comics, and all that the DC Universe contains are copyright and trademark Warner Brothers Entertainment, and no infringement is intended. I've seen it, Mr. Wayne. He thinks he's above the law. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Today is a day for truth. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2021, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Oh, wow, they just, they really just vanish. Huh? Oh, that's rude. An anthropomorphic shark called Shark King, voiced by Sylvester St King Shark. King Shark, please, sir. Not Shark King. This is the one I know best. <laughs> Sorry. I was thinking of Tiger King, I guess. <laughs> Fuck you. Oh, God, you really have to do that. It seemed desperate. It's what I imagine improvers doing when they realize people aren't laughing and they want to, they're, they're hungry for a, for a laugh. So they say something like butt or, you know, dick. <laughs> I've seen Dave Coulier do exactly that. Dave Coulier was bombing and he went blue. Dave Coulier? Like, cut it out, dickheads, to save the joke. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he ended up having to do dirty humor because he was just bombing yeah dave coulier did you get alanis more set up there to perform it with them like man <laughs> i mean that i would say <laughs> <laughs> fuck you